Hello and welcome to Ghost Divers. This is an anime podcast on the Export Audio Network, 
and uh, I am your host, Neve, and I'm joined by my co-host, Connor. Hello, everybody. And uh, our guest host, the honorary third host of Ghost Divers, because you're welcome on anytime, Autumn. You know, in the, I think in the fifth season of Buffy, they started having the guy who played Giles listed as special guest star in every episode because he didn't show up that often. But when he did, like he, he got to be higher than a guest star. I want that. That's what I want. You want I want to be the to, Giles of this podcast. You want to go back to not having a name? <laughs> you <be> special <laughs> guest star? No, no, no. Special <laughs> guest star, Autumn Blake. Uh, okay. Okay. You got you got that, Nia? <laughs> yeah. All right. I think it was season five. I, I could be wrong about that. So we're joined today by our special guest star, Autumn Blake. Thank you. Uh, and I'm joined by Anthony Stewart Head. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> the actor who played Giles. <laughs> most, of that, most of that explanation was me vamping while I tried to remember his name. <laughs> um well well we promise that we won't do the same thing to you yeah we won't we won't forget your name and then just like true time while you try and remember it desperately (laughs) so uh what are we talking about today are we we're doing magic night ray earth aren't we yeah we are doing magic night ray earth wow what a what a great day uh, uh, specifically episodes one through ten. Any day when you can talk about Magic Night Ray Earth is a great day in my book. Mm-hmm. Unless you're talking about Magic Night Ray Earth with someone who doesn't doesn't like it, you know, then unfortunately, um, less great day violence has to has to ensue. Yeah. So, Autumn, <laughs> what do you think about Magic Night Ray Earth? <laughs> I enjoyed it. It's. It's fine so far. It is an anime that you can watch, and and things happen in mm. the course of the television show. <laughs> yeah, um, <laughs> I will. I will say the reason why I love Magic Knight Ray Earth is not the first ten episodes, although they are a lot of fun. Um, yeah, like- I I did have a blast watching these. It's just that uh, I. I I don't know. <laughs> we'll get there. We'll get there, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, like, the the thing with, like, I feel like I would not have gotten through, like, the beginning of Magic Knight Ray Earth and gotten to the parts where I'm like, oh, I actually, like, legitimately really, really love this anime if it wasn't me doing this thing of, like... I wanted to watch this when I was a kid and I was like bullied for it. And now I came out as trans and I'm a girl. I'm going to like fucking watch it now. Um, because the beginning is like, it's, it's fine, but like you could just watch Slayers. Like if you want this, like Slayers is probably this bit better. Like it, it just does like this specific thing a little bit better. And what is interesting about Ray Earth is the directions that it, it ends up going, but um, we will get there in time. So I have a, a thing here uh, at the very top of our notes that says Neve has something planned. And then um, the like comment underneath this header is it should be fun. Trust me. <laughs> um, I'm going to send something in the, the discord chat here. Uh, uh, it's just a little document that you all can open up. So, uh, Autumn, Connor, do you, do you know the thing about the names in Magic Knight Ray Earth? I do not. 
Um, so let's just let's just go through where some some of these character names come from. <laughs> so we'll start with the Magic Knights themselves. Uh, of course, there's Ikaru Shido. Uh, so Hikaru means like light or or bright or something to to that effect. Um, it's basically literally just like Neve also means bright. So again, I'm just Hikaru. Um, <laughs> and then Shido is like Lion Hall. Um, in some translations, they did Lucy, which I think is like pointing toward towards light. Mm-hmm. Um, Umi Ryuzaki is uh, ocean dragon bloom. So Umi meaning ocean and then Ryuzaku meaning or Zaki meaning dragon bloom or like dragon flower. Um, alternate name for some translations is Marina. So again, pointing towards ocean stuff. And yeah. then Fuhoji is uh, wind phoenix temple um, and sometimes called anemone or Anne. This is the 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 one that like. I understand the least the alternate name, but um, you know it, it's pointing to like it's like Hikaru has fire magic, Umi has water magic, Fu has wind magic. Yeah, that's just like what their names mean. <laughs> um, so let's go down to some of the names of some of the the occupants of Sephiro. Uh, so Makona, who is the little. Uh, the funny little guy that we meet here. Um, this is named after Makona, the lead artist, colorist, and composition designer at Clamp. That's cute. Um, yeah. Uh, so now, Princess Emerald, named after the Mitsubishi Emerald, a Japan-only <laughs> hardtop version of the Mitsubishi Gallant. Master Mage Clef, Autozam Clef. Autozam is a brand mark of Mazda. <laughs> Master Smith's Prisea is named after the Nissan Prisea. Ferio is named after the Honda Civic Ferio, a Japanese name for a four-door model of the Civic sedan. That tracks. Um, yeah. Now, if we move on to Zagato and the followers of Zagato, Lord Zagato is named after Zagato Milano, an Italian automotive design company. Oh, yeah. Alcione yeah, is yes. named after the Subaru Alcione SVX, which is marketed outside of Japan as just the Subaru SVX. Um, Ascot is named after the Honda Ascot. Caldina, who you haven't really met yet, I think kind of appears at the very end, um, is named after Toyota Caldina. Lafarga is named after the Honda Rafaga. Um, Innova, which only appears in the anime, is named after the Honda Ascot Innova. Um, then Ascot's Beasts. So Atalanta is named after the Bugatti Type 57S Atalanta, which was um, sort of like an, an old hot rod. Uh, Pajero is named after the Mitsubishi Pajero, known in the U.S. as the Mitsubishi Montero, which is a SUV. Uh, Vigor is named after the Honda Vigor, also known in the U.S. as the Acura Vigor, uh, which is just a sedan. Um, Ducey, who in the, the anime is that like slug that we see briefly, uh, doesn't really do anything, is na- named after the 1932 Ford Deuce. Um Capella is named after the Mazda Capella, known in most other markets as the Mazda 626. Uh, then the rune gods. Engine Ray Earth means Flame God Ray Earth. Uh, Ray Earth is created. However, in the OVA, they changed Ray Earth's names to Lexus, which of course oh, is referring no. to Toyota Lexus, <laughs> the uh, luxury brand for to- Toyota. Uh, Kaijin Salis, which is the ocean god Salis, which is the the one that we've seen so far of the the mecha so far, is named after the Toyota Corolla Saris, which is a slightly restyled version of the Toyota Sprinter Merino um, in Japan. Kujin Windom is named after, or it means uh, Sky God Windom, named after the Toyota Windom, a Japanese-only variant of the Lexus ES. I love how the front Sephiro license plate itself. The front license plate just says Windom. <laughs> yeah. Sephiro itself 
is named after the Nissan Sephiro, known in some markets as the Nissan Maxima, including the US. We had one of those um, growing up. The Spring of Eterna is named after the Mitsubishi Eterna, a special Japan-only version of the Mitsubishi Gallant. Escudo, the the ore, is named after the Su- <laughs> Suzuki Escudo, called Suzuki Vitara in some markets. Um, there will be more of these when we get to the second season, but uh, this is everything that I have. Basically, every single character, other than... Uh, every single entity. Yeah, other than the three girls, the three Magic Knights, Makona... And Ray Earth, unless you're watching the the OVA, is named after a car. <laughs> <clears throat> so this is going to be our gloss for interpreting the entire series. Um, yeah. So everyone, uh, you know, if you're listening along, just make sure you open uh, many many tabs in your browser with each of these vehicles. I uh, I will just like link to this Google Doc when I upload this episode, so people can can look through and truly enjoy. Um, I, I sent this to a friend of the pod, Zhuo, ahead of time, uh, because Zhuo does know the the deal with the name of all the Ray Earth characters. Um, and he really appreciated the picture that I had for Princess Emerald, which is definitely the best of the car photos. The, uh, it's the just... one for um, the Emerald <laughs> is just Gran Turismo to me. I thought that was like yeah. promo, promo art for like Gran Turismo 1 on the <laughs> PS1. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah so th- this is... This is the thing with Ray Earth. It's funny because we've talked about this before, but I've never actually gone to like look up the vehicles. Um, and actually seeing the vehicles with the characters' names attached is, uh, <laughs> is, is a whole other level of amusement. Um, yeah. So thank you for doing this. Um, <laughs> and yeah, everyone listening along, uh, especially if you're watching the, the show with us, you should check this out um, because you know, it really tells you a lot about the, the characterization when you look at these <laughs> vehicles here. Um, yeah, I still, my favorite of this is always that Ferio is named after a four-door model version of a Honda Civic in Japan. So <laughs> Yeah, I will say, I think if we're judging like best and worst pairings here, um, I think Ferio is like the most on point as far as car character match. Yeah, um, like that... Yeah. That car embodies who that character is. Yeah, but <laughs> I just I don't see it with the Caldina. Um, I, I just I don't, don't see, see it with the Subaru Alcyon. That's the one that's really like the disconnect. I think you yeah. just need yeah. something more garish for Alcyon. <laughs> I mean, yeah. it is a Subaru. <laughs> <laughs> um, the the funny thing too about how I found this out is. Uh, so back in the days of Tumblr, I used to follow a bunch of different Ray Earth related tags. Uh, one of them being Ferio because, I mean, I'm sure we'll talk about him, but I love my dumb bratty, uh, Bishi boy. And so I followed the Ferio tag and it was always fun clicking that tag because it was always just like a 50 50 like coin toss. Is it going to be my Bishonen boy or is it going to be a Honda Civic? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, you're like breaking into a completely different Tumblr circle there with your, uh, you know, with, with that tag. Yeah. Um, anyway, do we want to get into the actual episodes now that I've done my fun thing? Yeah, I mean, now that we have the master guide for interpreting Ray Earth, um, <laughs> yeah. I think we're in great shape to like to go ahead and, you know, start a discussion. 
Okay. Um, I didn't check with all of you before we like actually started doing the episode. Are you fine with this breakdown of like five episodes, five episodes? Um, I just feel like there's a lot of, we talk no, like, we, between we, episodes a ton already, Connor. We have and... to change it. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, I'll, I'll talk to you all later, everyone. We'll just cut out some audio here. <laughs> Okay, I'm just I'm just doing the synopsis. <laughs> yes, go please go ahead with, with the synopsis. <laughs> okay, um, I did write it out here, so we'll all take turns doing episodes. Um, so, episode one. Uh, during a field trip to Tokyo Tower, Hikaru, Umi, and Fu, three girls from three different schools, are transported to the fantasy world of Sephiro. They are greeted by Master Mage Clef, who explains that they have been summoned to Sephiro by Princess Emerald, the Pillar of Sephiro, who has been captured by the High Priest Lord Zagato. They are to become legendary magic knights who are destined to save Sephiro, and they must fulfill this destiny before they can leave and return to modern 1994 Japan. Um, he grants them magic and tells them to seek Master Smith Prezea in the Forest of Silence, sending them off as he holds off Lord Zagato and is ultimately imprisoned in stone. The girls are pursued by Zagato's minion, the sorceress Alcyone, but Hikaru learns her first spell, Flame Arrow, and uses it to drive her off. You want me to just go ahead and start on the next one? Yeah, just go. <laughs> the girls arrive in the Forest of Silence, where no magic can be used, and come across the home of Master Smith Persea and the mascot character Makona. A mud monster attacks, and Persea lends them weapons to defeat it, where, with Hikaru ultimately developing a plan to lure it into water to defeat it. Persea tells them to seek the legendary ore Escudo in the Spring of Eterna so she can forge them proper weapons that will evolve to match the strength of their own hearts. And while traveling through the Forest of Silence towards the Spring of Eterna, <clears throat> Hikaru, Umi, and Fu meet the swordsman Furio. Despite them turning down his offer to be their guide, he continues to follow them creepily. Uh, <laughs> they all eventually encounter a floating stone that is uh, corrupting all of the little forest creatures into um, evil monsters. Uh, they devise a plan where Hikaru and Umi distract the monsters while Furio and Fu go to, dis to destroy the rock. Um, there's there's some nuance there with Furio like wanting to be the bait uh, and then running ahead and getting caught and just being generally inept. Um, <laughs> so Furio, yeah, he gets too close to the rock and he begins to like become a rock monster. And Fu, since she's dealing with the bow... Um, has to believe in herself and like will the arrow to fly from her bow and destroy the rock. Um, and, and it does. And uh, in exchange for, for this, uh, Furio gives Fu a special stone that we later learn is like a fantasy pager. I like to call it a walkie-talkie. Um, yeah. <laughs> that's basically like what it is. It's kind of a walkie-talkie. It's, it's a walkie-talkie mixed with a yak back. Yeah, I, I never had that. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe, uh, maybe that was. I just, yeah. There are just scenes coming up where uh, Faria will use the yak back feature of it to play the voices of the girls. Uh, but we'll get there. I guess yeah. I'm too zoomer to know what the fuck this is. Oh, a walkie talkie. No, a yak back. I know what it is. <laughs> um. So back in the day. 
uh, it was like difficult to record your voice and then play it back immediately because people didn't just have like computers in their pockets. Okay. Um, and so you would buy a thing called a yak back that would let you record short snippets of audio and then play it back. Huh. On like tapes? No, it was like a, it was like a thing that you would get as a kid. So it was just like a little, oh. I can't believe you don't know what a yak back is. I'm 25 yeah, I, I didn't years know old. Either. Oh my God. <laughs> I have lived most of my life with a computer in my pocket. Um, The fact that neither of you know this is incredible. I'm sending a, a, like, this is what a yak back looks like. So it it must have just been, like, a Michigan thing. (laughs) No, this is a thing that, like, people had. Oh, this is what, uh, this is what Kingdom Hearts Coded first came out on. Here's um, a here's like a picture of a yak back. You could push so the, that's the original so version fake. that is so photoshopped. So the original <laughs> version was this one, which just had say and play. So you'd you'd hold say and you would say something into it, and then you would hit play, and then it would just play the sound. Uh, but then as it went on, it got more advanced. So the the first one that I sent, that's the orange one, uh, had like drama like drum effects and like splat effects and things. So uh, there are some other sounds that you could play that were like pre-programmed in addition to you would be able to record yourself saying something and then hit play and it would like play it back at you. This is also part of the synopsis, by the way. (laughs) In the, in the next scene. (laughs) Anyway, um, I mean, you didn't say the part about how they part ways at the end, but anyway, the girls come across a village and are captured by the villagers who are just distrustful of them. Um, however, when a monster attacks, Hikaru helps save a young child, um, who I'm sure we'll never see again, and defeats the monster with the help of Umi. Uh, Alcyone attacks suddenly, injuring Umi. This time, Alcyone is prepared, and Hikaru is unable unable to beat her using her flame arrow spell uh, but thankfully umi regains consciousness and is so overwhelmed by her desire to protect her girlfriend that she learns the spell water dragon and defeats alcyone um seems like alcyone like really only prepares for like the bare minimum spells that these girls can know and then fu is so overwhelmed by her desire to save her gravely wounded girlfriend uh umi that she learns the spell winds of healing and cures umi's wounds Hikaru, Umi, and Fu uh, defeat a water monster and, unbeknownst to them, are poisoned with a slow-acting poison that weakens them. They then finally come to the Spring of Eterna, which is a magic disk of water floating in the air. They dive in and end up confronting dreamlike reflections of their own lives. Hikaru must face off against her pet dog, Hikari. Um, Umi must face off against her parents, and Fu must face off against herself. I'm going to just fix this so I don't mess it up. Uh, they all eventually see through the lies and defeat the enemies, passing the trial and acquiring the Escudo. Alcyone uh, attacks as the poison fully sets in, but their newly acquired Escudo ore merges with their armor, strengthening it and giving them access to new spells. This begins a long sequence where every episode they get new upgrades that don't mean much. Hikaru <laughs> learns Ruby Lightning, Umi learns Sapphire Whirlwind, and Fu learns Emerald Typhoon. They all cast their new spells, defeating Al- Alcyone. Uh, back at the lair of Lord Zagato, Alcyone <laughs> begs for one last chance, but Zagato ignores her and imprisons her, tasking the minion Ascot with 
defeating the Magic Knights instead. So, yeah, I basically, I cut this off as, like, let's do the the Alcione episodes first. Yeah. Um, any initial thoughts? Um, so, <laughs> a thing that I thought would get commented on more, I guess a thing that was bugging me a little bit in the first couple episodes is that like Clef, they're Obi-Wan essentially. Uh, I don't know that he's an Obi-Wan, but he's like a magical mentor guy. <laughs> Looks like he's nine years old. Mm. And <laughs> the only, the only reason I'm bringing this up first is because I thought someone was going to make a joke about this at some point and no one ever did. And then episode five introduces the villain for the next arc of the show who is six years old. <laughs> Yeah, he's literally a child. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, no, no one's allowed to make fun of Clef. It's a good staffer's rule. I guess he's a short king. I guess that's just his thing. He's more he's more of like a Yoda than an Obi-Wan. Yeah, I think you're right. <laughs> yeah. He's like this immortal short guy, you know, magic, you know, mentor, whatever, who, yeah, um, yeah, there's there's stuff with Clef later on that uh, it's there's so much stuff with Clef that spoilers that I want to like joke about, but I'm not going to. Um, so also with Ascot, to be honest. Yeah, yeah. There's there's so much there. Um, just uh, when we when we get around to it, Autumn, you'll know when I'm what we're referring to, and. Uh, I'm glad you all pointed I'm this saying out because is it's short funny. kings. All I'm saying is short kings hold out hope. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. I mean, so I I guess to like get some some stuff rolling, like the the first thing that like especially when it comes to let's talk about these these first five episodes and like the span of these first ten episodes is kind of just like. Me trying to set up for what's going to come next is like what it what is the like style and tone so far, mm-hmm. um, and this is the thing that I I forget if I mentioned this when we did in the intro to Ray Earth episode, but was like intensified by the fact that I literally watched like the last twenty episodes before I watched these first ten episodes, like back to back. I just went from the final episode forty nine to episode one, um, literally in the same day, mm-hmm. and like. There's so much use of like the quote unquote chibi or like super deformed SD style um, in these these episodes. They will frequently have these visual gags where characters will be drawn in that like sort of super deformed style. And like I think my favorite visual gag that happens here too is um I believe it's when they're fighting all of the monsters that are around the the rock. That's like generating the the evil monsters in the forest of silence. Mm-hmm. There's just like them fighting a bunch of monsters, and then there's just a part where it's just like intermission, and it's just like Hikaru and Umi just like resting and like <laughs> leaning back and like breathing. Um, and yeah, there's just like this extensive use of like this is just like a very goofy show in a way that is, um, especially coming off of. Neon Genesis Evangelion is like incredibly refreshing and nice. It's yeah. just like, oh, look at this. This is like cute and funny. <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> this like 
constant um i mean they're not not only just like outright comedy bits like that um but just the visual gags like are so woven in throughout this first season i, I was noticing this as well like rewatching it um just how prominent they are um i found myself wondering like i couldn't recall if they're present in season two or if they're present to like the same degree um but they are like such a prominent stylistic feature of season one in a way that like uh for for me yeah is is really refreshing yeah and i think the other like broad thing that comes up here is just the like especially these first 10 episodes really really just feel like this is playing and referencing uh like playing with and referencing jrpg tropes yeah um which even gets lampshaded by foo like there's a part in episode like two or three where she like points out something about how this is like a jrpg um yes i think it's specifically with the like when they learn about how the escudo weapons will like evolve on their own and she's like oh like it's just like an RPG. I guess that yeah, it's like an RPG where it will like level up and like we don't have to buy new equipment. That's great. <laughs> um, I'm really glad that um, just by coincidence, I played through Dragon Quest One shortly before we started recording this because like one, Dragon Quest One is a very good game, and two, like I felt like all of JRPG history like suddenly fit into a very nice mold, you know, and like I understood yeah. the way of things because because. Like Dragon Quest One is like so fully formed as like what this genre is. So then going and also out of that and l- into Rare Earth, which is like really one to one translating a lot of the stuff that like is there as early as Dragon Quest One is. You know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I think it's especially true too because um, Dragon Quest is just like fucking huge in Japan. Yeah. Um. It it is it is like at like almost like disney levels in japan where it's just like anytime that you're anywhere that will have crane games there are going to be like slimes in one of the crane games like it's just like a rule um you will just see dragon quest like up in like your 7-eleven or whatever as like a thing that's being promoted um it's just a, a huge thing there uh to this extent where like yeah this is obviously drawing on JRPGs as a, a whole, but I think also um, Dragon Quest is like such the er JRPG for Japan and, and really gets called out or like it is one that I think makes more sense than like if you've played uh, Final Fantasy, which is a little bit more leaning towards Western fantasy, uh, whereas this is like very much like the monsters are kind of cute and fun still. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like I I think I think cuz Final Fantasy and Chrono Trigger are my other big like JRPG touchstones and I think I would have made the connection at some point but not quite so as like literally in episode 1 I'm like, "Oh, they got transported to Dragon Quest." Okay. They got transported <laughs> <Yeah>. to Dragon <laughs> Quest. <laughs> um yeah, and that it's especially heavy here, which I think is interesting because as we go on, we can like talk about how the the points of reference shift. But especially these first episodes, it's so prevalent that like what they are doing is here's a JRPG where you're like learning spells and leveling up, um, and like having the recurring boss fight 
with Alcione. Yes. yes. <laughs> um, which is a thing that happens in anime where like a villain will stick around for a few episodes, but it feels so much like here is the like bit villain for this series like this section of the game that you're going to fight a couple times and we'll have like different move sets each time mm-hmm. um or like slightly different abilities this is how uh, the first season of sailor moon functions yeah you know. <laughs> that makes sense um yeah i i think that's like the other parts that i have here will will come up i've already hinted at it um they're gay <laughs> <laughs> all three girls are gay um, I don't know if that? we've seen it at this point like in these five episodes but in these ten episodes we definitely see them all sleeping in the same bed and there's a part where uh, Umi and Fu like look at Hikaru and are like she was pretty amazing wasn't she <laughs> so um, that is in these first five episodes and notably in that scene the three girls are sleeping in three different beds and then that's in the true. Back half of these five episodes, they're all like, "No, no, no, we'll share one bed." Yeah, they somehow yeah. progress to one bed. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but the the part that also stood out to me, especially on this rewatch, is literally the very first episode. The first time that Hikaru looks at both Umi and Fu, it is anime romance shot with yes. the like lighting effects and everything for both of them. Yes. Um, and I I think like. Umi and Fu take a little bit longer to like open up to that, but Hikaru right from the jump is just like, I love these girls. <laughs> these are my <laughs> girlfriends. Um I we'll get to this when we get to, to episode six through ten. I don't think Umi has ever loved a man in her life. Um I think Fu is mostly straight, but uh it is like so smitten by Hikaru and Umi. And just like the the polycule that they have, that um, this is her first foray and probably only foray into like I'm gonna be gay, but uh, definitely commits. I will say, despite having Fario on the side, which which we'll get into more. Right. So how I read it was because I think in episode, let me just make sure I get this right. I think early in episode three. Um, Umi gets her magic powers because she sees Hikaru being like the sh- getting the shit kicked out of her, and she's like wants to protect her girlfriend so bad that she develops magic powers. And then Fu does this when she sees like Fario getting beaten up, and so I very much read Fu as their straight friend. <laughs> <laughs> There's nothing but, wrong with being the straight friend. But Fu, Thank you. but Fu <laughs> gets those magic powers and heals Umi. That's true. That's true. So, I I just think Umi is mostly straight, but not fully straight. Yeah. And we'll get into this more as the series goes on. But, um, but yeah. definitely Hikaru and Umi are are dating. Like <laughs> that is set up by the end. Yes. of these ten episodes. Yes. Um. Yeah. Anyway. Um, Connor, Connor, do you have thoughts on how gay they are? Do you want to get into some of your notes? Um, I was going to go into my notes. I know that uh, there will be uh, quite a bit of discussion about um, how they're all gay (laughs) as we go on. (laughs) Um, But I think um, just to like, just to like kind of help frame things up a little bit um, as we go through 
you know, the, this chunk of episodes, I think, and I'm reaching all the way back to like the very start of our discussion here. Um, watching through these episodes again, um, and this time really trying to like critically pay attention to, um, what I think is like the narrative logic. I've actually, I've really been enjoying them. And I think that there's, um, in a way, as I think I said in the intro, like there's a way in which Ray Earth season one, especially like the first half, it, it seems simple, but in its simplicity, it, it actually has a, a lot of depth, um, that, that I think can be drawn out. So I think like even in the first five minutes, uh, of episode one, we can already start to like suss out or identify the, the kind of logic that like Magic Knight Ray Earth is using to, to tell its story. Um, so we get this like triad of characters. Um, I know we've already described them a little bit, but, uh, just to like, deepen that a little bit, uh, deepen that some more here. I think Ray Earth is the, I think the, the part of the way that the uh, narrative logic in Ray Earth operates is like through character types, um, through setting up parallels and contrasts that are very subtle and not always like explicitly stated. Um, mm-hmm. and one of the things I think it's doing right away is like triangulating um, three different, like, quote unquote types of, like, femininity, um, with Hikaru, uh, Fu and Umi, uh, with Hikaru being, like, the obvious, like, tomboyish, brash, like, energetic, um, Fu being, like, this kind of, um, reserved, like, kind, you know, sincere, um, like, quote unquote, like, nerdy type. Um, and then Umi being this like posh, effete, refined, like, uh, posh girl, essentially. Mm-hmm. Um, and already it's kind of setting up these like three distinct models, which are also imbricated with, I, I have to note this. I don't know if it goes anywhere and we can debate this. Um, but they're also pretty clearly imbricated with like a class triangulation. Yeah. Um, with like Hikaru being like from the normal girls' school, um, I noticed that she's like immediately shown to have no money because yeah. she runs out of the like, uh, you know, her time on the binoculars and then like yeah, the pull- like quarter to to watch <laughs> yeah, and then like pulls out her pockets and she has nothing in them. Um, Fu is like magnet school, um, which I take to be like positioned as a more middle class. Like she's the the girl who's going to like excel in magnet school and then go on to be like some like middle manager in, or like even like an upper manager in some corporation um, and be like upper middle class or whatever. Um, And then Umi, it's like specifically stated that she goes to like a white collar private school. Um, She's clearly like upper class. She's leading this pack of girls. Um, Again, she's like very posh. Um, and we'll learn more about her as well that like reinforces this later on, but like, we're already getting these like very, uh, firm character traits, um, for like each of these characters, um, that I actually do think, um, become significant for 
even in these first 10 episodes, the narratives, uh, the show starts to like develop the individual narratives for each of these characters. Um, and I think the emotional content of those narratives is uh, meaningfully like grounded in, in these like quote unquote types um, that are being associated with, with each of the girls. Um, yeah. Um, so, yeah. So like, I don't, because I touched on in the intro episode that I haven't actually finished a lot of magical girl anime, but like, all the magical anime, magical girl anime that I have watched is very much concerned with like how femininity is constructed, and so like there's like a very like this show is very immediate with like like femininity is constructed both as like it, it is constructed in like a pretty varied way and in a very like classed way and in like exactly the way that you're touching on like that like the ways in which these girls express the ways that they are feminine immediately ties into like class situations and like you see in in this is more in later episodes uh that we'll get to soon but like umi is like doing fencing which is like an upper class sport if ever there fucking mm-hmm. was one you know yeah, yeah the only thing worse like the only thing more upper class could be like polo or whatever it's like polo and golf you know yeah. what fencing might be more that than golf even you know yeah yeah especially for magic girl anime where like fencing is like such a like fencing also comes up as a thing in uh Utada, which we'll be be watching next. So, um, mm-hmm. like I think especially within Japan, there's like this like there's an association uh, with fencing. I think with like Frenchness that has like all these associations of like aristocracy, of class. Yeah. right? Yeah, right. I mean, like it, it's weird because like this show, like this show, just is hard to come by in America, but like. Rose of Versailles is really fucking huge, and people really care about Rose of Versailles. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. And in a way that it is like, it is an urtext for a lot of magical girl stuff beyond just being like very explicitly like in the DNA of Utna. And so, yeah, like it's it's kind of like hard to talk about because like the manga is still coming out here finally after 50 years, and the anime has only been like fan translated, I think. Um, it's weird, uh, but yeah, uh, and that is very much a show about how gender is constructed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, to to quick like podcast gremlin. I know we're talking about like <laughs> the way that the show's actually constructing Hikari, Umi, and Fu as mm. like these different types of femininity tied to class. But how are we all feeling about my my uh proposition that I think? In the episode that just went out for for Evangelion, it's in there that I am Hikaru, Autumn, you are Umi, and Connor, you're Fu. So I might have mentioned that. I don't think I mentioned this in the intro episode, but I might have. I was texting you. I was like, remind me which one you think I am. And you said Umi. I know that's not very flattering, but, and I interrupted you to be like, no, 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 I wanted to be Umi. Don't worry about it. (laughs) 
Yeah, it might be a little weird considering we just like transitioned off the discussion of like these class associations. Mm-hmm. And I don't think that's like what your proposition is rooted in. No, um, it is it is not. Yeah, I mean and feel free to uh make make explicit your uh your logic behind your proposition if uh if you choose to. Um, yeah. Before I respond. So I think what I put forth in the Ava episode, which I just recently listened to because I had to do uh like episode notes for it. So obviously I'm Hikaru because I'm the main character, <laughs> which I'm the main <laughs> character of Ghost Divers. Yeah. Um, right. I'm following you yeah. so far. This 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 is somewhat of a joke, but like Hikaru is the one who is uh like of these three, I think is the one who's like the most likely to be like one like very sincerely like caring about everyone around her, and yet also like going to sometimes be kind of a uh, a brat about it. Um. Which I think will come up more as it goes on. The other thing here is that, like, we haven't gotten to Nova yet. I, I keep, like, you know Nova, Autumn, but you don't know who Nova is in terms of the show. <laughs> right? You know Nova as someone who I keep evoking as someone who is also me. Um, and I think that is also part of, like, why I see myself as Hikaru. Is also because I see myself as Nova. And the way that those two characters relate is, like, important for for why I am Hikaru. Um, I when will, it comes to... I will also say um, that, like, Hikaru is the, the caring one, yes. Hikaru is also the very loud and brash one who just by, like, by gravitational pull demands the most screen time. And so, yes, you are the main <laughs> character of Ghost Divers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah with just your sheer willpower you just like get us to buy into this quest and we're just yeah. like okay yeah yeah you know i'll i'll become a fucking magical knight yeah uh, that, yeah i'll i'll watch all 49 episodes of magic knight ray earth with you sure that girl really believes in it so i guess like i guess i can believe in it too <laughs> um in terms of umi and so like, kind of the way that you wrote this, you have Hikaru, Fu, and Umi, and it threw me off because I'm so used to it being Hikaru, Umi, and Fu. Yeah, I know. Um, I know that's, that's your, just like your the order, order that it yeah. is in the show. No, it's just like the order, <laughs> like, in the show, they will always say Umi and Fu. Mm-hmm. Like, they don't do Fu and Umi. I don't think I've ever heard them say Fu and Umi. I don't think they've ever put it that way. It's just the way that the order is in the show. <laughs> um, But... So, so part of like why I think Autumn, you are Umi, which we've gotten to a little bit here, but I, I think like Umi is the one who, when you first see her, is the most like standoffish, but that standoffishness is like almost just like a, a way that she's constructed herself and not like who she truly is, which is someone who I think is actually deeply caring about the people around her. Um, it just takes her a while to like open up and feel comfortable with people. And that feels very you to me. So, <laughs> um, that feels very- as someone who is like said on ma- multiple podcasts, do not tweet at me. <laughs> <laughs> the other thing here, um, Cause I feel like, <laughs> cause I feel like we brought this up and then we're like, oh, well, if we want to kin these characters, we need to back off of this. I'll, I'll just admit it that like, so 
I work a job where I make an hourly wage that is less than $15 an hour. Uh, I am not like an upper class person. I also know that like I am a Taylor Swift mega fan. And um, like a lot of country music, broadly <laughs> speaking, that constructs genders, that constructs femininity in this very like upper class white way that I, I'm very aware of as I also buy into it a lot of the time. <laughs> and so like, sure, I can dunk on myself a little bit and be like, yeah, I do want to be the posh fancy girl. Are you fucking kidding me? I want... <laughs> I once told a coworker, I want to look like a girl who has a really nice Instagram, even though I don't. <laughs> <laughs> and that's Umi. Yeah. Except Umi has the, has a nice Instagram. Umi definitely has a nice Instagram. Yeah. She's better at taking pictures of food than I am. She posts selfies, like, just frequently enough to remind you that she's pretty, but not so frequently that you think that she's vain. She posts, Lots of like, fencing cool- pics. Lots of fencing pics, lots of like, you know, let me post this um, picture of like my front yard looking really pretty that I like ran a couple filters over, but not too many that it looks plasticky, that sort of stuff. Lots of photos that just like casually suggest like, oh, I'm just in Barcelona drinking coffee right now. Um, (laughs) But in this way that like, you don't think at first about like, you have the money to just go to Barcelona, but that you're just like, it starts with just like, Oh, that's a really nice looking cup of coffee. And then you realize that she's in Barcelona, but it's like subtle enough that you don't like, don't fully think about it. And then you keep looking at the picture and you're like, who's that guy she's with in the picture. And you realize that he's like a player for the Barcelona team. And you're like, what, what? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Um, and then Connor, for foo and it so like it is not just that you're the third ghost diver you're actually the second ghost diver but Uh. you're the third ghost diver (laughs) and this is foo um it it is like i could be the mean one and just say like yes you're Atlantis. the reason why your foo is twofold one is that foo is still kind of the straight friend even though i think they are all still dating um and you're the straight friend in this group that that's like that's the like topmost point here. Okay. But I think the other part the defining characteristic. Here, <laughs> I think the like more important point for me here is that I think Fu is someone who throughout the series is often very like reserved in this way of like just needs to have the people ar- around her to like help her open up. Um and like I think Within you, it often comes from this point of, like, you. what I appreciate about you is that you're very intentional about this, like, I know that, like, I've had this, like, dealing with gender in my own way, but that dealing with gender is dealing with the fact that I am, like, I am a cis white man, and I have to, like, think about what it means to actually still identify with that, um, to, like, to be that in this world. And so what I'm going to do is relativize my experience and, like, make sure that I'm not talking over people, like, make sure that I, I, I am giving voice to people around me. I think you're very intentional about that, but it is also a thing that makes it, like, the dynamic of ghost divers is that often I am trying to egg you on to get you to, like, go and talk. <laughs> um, and that is a foo thing. Foo is the one who, like, needs a little bit of a push to, like, really, really get going. Um, and so I think that's why you're Foo. <laughs> yeah, I think I think that's fair. 
Um, yeah. I was going to talk over and you. I, I'm I, saying, I, I, like, I had this such comes an urge to point. talk over you there, but I just, like, I didn't. And I'm saying this, like, comes from a point of, like, I think you are, like, genuinely very conscious about, like, how how am I existing in this space? Am I not talking over people? Am I, am I like, giving room for other people to talk? Which I think is a very admirable thing about you. It's one of the reasons why I'm doing a podcast with you. <laughs> Um, there are not a lot of like cis white men I would do a podcast with. <laughs> yeah, I, I imagine that list is pretty short. Um, uh, well, I I appreciate that. Um, and then maybe I like the only other thing that that I see that makes sense there as someone who like often feels like Furio and Lantis, two characters that. <laughs> And two characters that I really strongly dislike and yet like identify with. Um, so make of that what you will. Um, <laughs> See, this is also a very foo trait. Like foo phases off against herself. Her greatest enemy is herself. Is like, you know. Yeah. Anyway, continue. Um, the only other thing about foo is that, um, and I, I hope that you feel that this is true within our dynamic as goose divers. Um, sometimes Fu, uh, is trying, is good for, uh, chiming in with a pretty smart comment sometimes. And then equally often, um, chiming in with something that is just like painfully obvious and that she thinks is like smart. Um, so I don't know how, how true that rings for you, but, um, that's the other that's the other side of it that that I that I see. I mean, I feel like so far you've had the smartest things to say about Magic Knight Rayearth because I'm just like, hell yeah, I love these girls. <laughs> 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 these are my bitches. <laughs> so, yeah, I'm like, yeah. I know, I know, we've got a structure. Um, can we? Because we are getting into like who these characters are. I think it might be good. There's stuff I want to circle back to, but I think it might be good to, like, talk about episode five a little bit, where the three characters, like, kind of, like, you know, have to fight some inner part of themselves in that very anime mm-hmm. fashion. Because I feel like... Yeah, L- listen, Autumn, this is why I did all five at the top, so we can just jump around. Yeah, exactly. So, like, because I... Episode five was my favorite of this bunch, because you get... I mean, this is just the thing I like in anime because I played Kingdom Hearts when I was seven years old or whatever. And um, oh, that's like... too that's too early. <laughs> it's never too early to play Kingdom Hearts. <laughs> I I'm just looking when. How old was I when Kingdom Hearts came? All right, let's fucking get this number here. Um, Kingdom Hearts one. Right. When did the first one come out? Kingdom Hearts one came out in. 2002 march 2002 so i was 14 i was six all right (laughs) and because i was six and because this was like the first video game like this that i played like i kind of somewhere in my heart think that like stories are fundamentally about people entering stained glass worlds of interiority where they confront their deepest problems you know um, mm. which means that I like anime a lot because it happens in every anime and it happens in episode five of this show. Uh, and the episode five is 
where I clicked with the show the most because it's like, all right, let's start to pick at what what are these girls' concerns like in their hearts? Because we don't actually see a lot of that because they're in these extraordinary circumstances a lot of the time. And so we don't we haven't got a chance to see yet what's going on internally with them. Um, and so I really liked episode five. And I'm just going to read uh, Connor's notes because he wrote it out. Hell yeah, um, I do this sometimes. <laughs> um, Hikaru sees Hikari, her pet dog, uh, and has to... Oh, the, the thing I was going to say before I continue to read Connor's notes is just that, like... Um, the thing that I found really interesting about episode five is that they come to some sort of peace with these things, but like kind of the reverse of where they kind of come to, um, you know, what? let me read Connor's notes. I'm, I'm getting ahead of myself a little bit. I'm jumping around too much in my head. So, uh, Hikaru, has to face Hikari, um, her pet dog, which represents her need for unconditional love. Umi has to confront her parents, which represent her, fixa- her fixation on status and her need for validation. And Fu has to confront herself, her f- fear of inferiority and self-hatred that motivates her achievement. Um, before accessing Escudo, um, which is the magical ore that we talked about in the summaries, they have to grapple with these anxieties around the things they love, um, these are important signposts for each girl's narrative, their growth, and emotional challenges. And, like, so, like, the interesting thing about what they all realize is, like, oh, I'm, um, I'm being confronted by this person I love. The people I love could never possibly want to hurt me. So that this, this is clearly some fiction I'm seeing. And also, like, because I am a young person, I am not capable of expressing, like, love back to them in the ways that they need. Like, Umi is like, well, I want to be able to take care of my parents when I'm older. And Fu Mm. is like, oh, well, if I was hurt, it would hurt my family who cares about me so much. And so I cannot hurt myself. Yeah, that's why I value myself. Yeah, and it's like... That might be what the show concludes with. I don't I don't know. That feels to me like a very unsatisfying conclusion that like, oh, I'm a young person and so I must just like subordinate myself to the older people in my life. Like that just doesn't feel like how character arcs end ever, you know? Yeah. I don't for, <laughs> yeah. for what it's worth, let me just throw it in. Like I also I I don't feel like this is a resolution. Yeah. Um, that's why yeah. I use the word signpost. I think it's like a, a marker where the show is like gesturing at okay these are the these like conflicts within each character that are almost uh we're like marking these off um mm-hmm. as emergent like conflicts that are continuing to be developed yeah i mean this this is getting ahead to like episodes six through ten a little bit but like we can get into this more when we get there, but um, we even get like a, a repeat of this thing with Hikari mm-hmm. where, um, mm-hmm. you know, Hikaru once again has to like confront like 
but I, I think it develops and we can get into it more when we get there. But like, there is going to be another situation where Hikaru has to fight something that she's seeing as Hikari. Yes. Um, and so like, I, I think also that like that is pointing towards the show specifically not going to just stop here at like, they have resolved this, but rather this is the, the beginning of it. And the, the first step is just like recognizing that what is happening in that moment is like an illusion. And actually I do have to like fight back and, and try and claim this thing for myself and, and like push against it, but that it is, mm-hmm. um, that is not the end of it. And we see within like these 10 episodes that it's not the end of it. Yeah. Um, which is again, one of the benefits about talking about like 10 episodes of an anime is that we can talk about these broad arcs instead of having to, to like, wonder at what could could be happening next so <laughs> yeah and um, and I, I will say like just to kind of um at like add a personal spin um to what you're talking about since we were just talking about our like character connections here um i it, you know if this were a resolution and and we can debate later like if we feel that these things are are resolved you know at the at the end of Rare, whatever. But for Fu, like, as someone who, I mean, I'll just be, like, blunt about it. Like, as someone who, I, it's not a coincidence that I, like, I'm, I'm probably projecting a little bit. I do think this is, like, a fairly accurate or getting in the right direction of what's going on um, with these characters. Um, but it's also, like, I, it's not coincidental that, like, you know, I'm also someone who, like, struggles a lot with self-hatred. Um, mm-hmm. And that idea of, like, well, if I was hurt, like, then it would hurt everyone around me. And that's why it's important that, like, I don't get hurt um, or that, like, nothing bad happens to me. Um is something that is like so at least for me like it's not a satisfactory um resolution of that like problem Um, yes yes yeah yeah i mean we'll, we'll get into this too with when we get to season two um which is like me somewhat signaling this stuff is going to continue but like you having here, Hikaru has this need for unconditional love is like, this is the, if we're like getting into the like deep, more serious version of how are we mapping onto these three characters? Part <laughs> Sorry, of the I reason took a why, <laughs> yeah, part of the reason why Hikaru is me is because I think Hikaru of these three characters is the most like directly needy in this sense of like, I need the people around me to like be giving me affection as a a matter of course. This is like something that I'm like desperate for. And I I think we're starting to see this with Hikaru and it's going to like continue to be a theme with her. And it is part of why I identify with her so much Mm -hmm. is that she really is someone who is just like, it it is incredibly important to me that the people in my life, uh, like are reminding me that they love me and that that love is not something that will be like taken away because of like whatever else happens. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, you know, well, on- happy fun anime. Let's, let's go into some. <laughs> <laughs> Unlike Umi, I have no fraught relationship with my parents. Next question. Uh... 
Um, you you um, don't have to talk about this if you don't want to. I, I'm not going. <laughs> You're not just volunteering you for it. <laughs> I'm not going to. Uh, <laughs> that joke was enough. Yep. Um, um, the, you go because I I was I w- had a point and I kind of lost it and I can tie it back in later. I feel like if I find it back. So. Okay. Um. Yeah, I think the stuff with. I think the stuff with Foo is is maybe like a little bit developed. Um, maybe you two have uh, better ideas about that <clears throat> in this like chunk of episodes one through ten. Um, I do think we see more of the stuff with with Hikaru and Umi um, playing out. Umi especially in nine through ten, um, and then Hikaru with the stuff around Vigor, and and I think we're already in this chunk of episodes um, seeing them like still have to grapple further. Um, beyond like the quote unquote conclusions that they reach here um, with Hikaru being like, you know, I put down this need for unconditional love um, and in a, in a note like lower down, I see Hikaru, by the way, none of this is a comment on you, Nia. Um, this is not like <laughs> intended to translate to you. Um, just just going to throw that out there. Um, I see Hikaru as the girl who, like, goes to the Humane Society and then, like, wants to adopt every, like, puppy or whatever and, like, won't let her parents leave until they adopt, like, way too many animals. Um, the thing that with her that I think the show is interrogating and challenging is, like, <sighs> there is this... There is this perspective on like pet ownership that I'm not, I I don't like really agree with, but I'm going to throw it out there because I feel like it's relevant to make this point. Um, there's this perspective on pet ownership where some people believe that like owning a pet is like essentially like having like an emotional support slave that you just like have this creature to exist like at your convenience and give you like emotional support, like, and, and give it, you know, sustenance in exchange. And again, I don't like agree with this perspective. Um, but I think that this is, I think the show is challenging Hikaru's obsession with like unconditional love uh, along these lines of like, she is so obsessed with having this that there's, there's an element where her, her need for it, it, she's not really grappling with her own need for it in a way, in a way that's mediating it. Um, she's just like giving it free reign, um, to the extent that she just like, grabs every animal and just like, oh yeah, like you're a hikari now. Like I need a hikari because I don't have one. Because right. like, he's back in Tokyo. Like, no, no, you're my hikari now. Um and like I have to care for you and like, you know, you're like sleeping in my bed right away. And like there there's this element of um desperation and need that is almost um you know I, I'll stop short of saying like manipulative but is is almost manipulative like if you just allow this you know 
this need to just have complete free reign. You can get into this territory. Um, and then the stuff with Umi, like, I have a, there's extended notes on that later on with episodes nine and 10, um, where I think that that's brought out in, like, a, um, uh, parallel with Alcione. So we can leave that for, for there. Um, but all of this to say, like, to, to get back to my, the point I made in my first note, like, I do think this is why I like, season one of rare earth because i think there's all there's a lot of rich like character stuff that is not um that that is there and can be drawn out and i think it's it does it in subtle ways with a kind of um non-obvious like logic um but i do think it um it, it has some like rich character development that it's doing um so, like, kind of tying into all that, but also, like, as a separate thing, um, the thing that I find really interesting, and I think this gets developed in episodes 6 through 10, but, like, I think it starts here, and so we can talk about it here, um, is this idea of Sephiro as, like, a land of will, quote-unquote, mm. where, like, whoever has the strongest will, whoever wishes for something the most, just manifests it as reality. And, like, the main way that we've seen that show up to this point is, like, it sort of makes literal the way that, like, combat works in, like, Sailor Moon and Utena, which is that, like, if Sailor Moon believes in herself, um, then she will be victorious, but if she doesn't believe in herself, she'll start crying and not be victorious, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, this is one thing that I do find really interesting about the first season, which, I mean, it, it comes up a little bit with the second season, but I think the first season feels more invested in, like, let's start with this assumption, uh, this, like, very anime assumption about this is a land of will, and, like, if you can believe in it, it, it will become possible, um, and then let's like actually start fleshing out like what would that actually mean? What happens to people like desire or want conflicting things? Mm-hmm. Um, how do you make sense of this world? And you know, one of the things, and I I think this gets developed as it goes on, but like one of the parts that's put forth at the very beginning is that Princess Emerald is um like the pillar of Sephiro, and there's like this sense of like everybody like wills her to be the ruler. And so then she's the one who like gets to decide what the world is in this way. That's like one gesturing towards like Imperial Japan as a, as a historical thing mm-hmm. um, in ways that I don't know how much the series like really truly develops, but is also gesturing towards like, if you have this land of will, there's a certain point at which people have to like, agree that like someone is going to make the decisions when there is like conflict <laughs> because mm-hmm. otherwise like what is the world going to do anymore <laughs> and so it's like okay there's this like woman who we put all of the the like all of the weight of and it is very much constructed throughout the series as like being the pillar is like carrying the weight of this world of will on your shoulders and being the one who like makes it make sense in some way. Right. Um, in a, in a way that is like gesturing far more towards like 
feminine labor than I think towards like actual despotic rule. <laughs> so the the one thing I'll add to that is so there's a way of looking at this where it you can interpret it as uh, this kind of pseudo elective process where um, everyone is collectively willing that Emerod, you know, be the, the prime willer or whatever. Um, I think it's open ended whether, and and again, this we can debate this once we get to the end. Um, I think it's open ended whether it's that because it's either that or equally interesting proposition um this these um it's somehow inherent that someone just has a greater power of will because it's an inherent trait um and that they're born with this destiny um Mm -hmm. and they just by destiny have this um, power and this responsibility, um, which via that route takes you um, directly back to the um, Imperial Japan kind of uh, reference. And, and I, I think that there is tension between those two things. Um, I, I don't think it's it's clearly resolved, definitely not here. Where, where we are right yeah. now. And I think it's debatable. Um, there are some things that happen at the end of season two where there's like a shift around this. But as far as the point in the narrative where we are right now, um, I think it's it's open-ended which one of those yeah. things is actually op- operative, how this is working. Yeah, um, we get very little about what it really means to be the pillar of Sephiro, which is a thing that will be developed more, but um, I think it's a useful setting up here. Mm-hmm. The, the other thing I'll add, um, unless, Autumn, did you have something that you wanted to um, to, to add to your original No, point? that's basically all I have. I might have something more in the... I might have one more thing to tie into this in the second half, but I think that's all I had for right now. Okay. Um, well, I'm grateful that you brought up this point, because I think that this is something that I wanted to get into before you move on because I just think um, it it is an essential backdrop for it's a thematic backdrop that we need um, to make sense of a lot of what's going on in this series. Um, so all this stuff about Sephiro being a land of the will, um, it, first of all, it ties into like this. This theme that I think the um, the series is trying to deal with, which is like this, and and I won't remark too much on it, um, but this like the transition from like childhood to adulthood, um, and and more specifically, like it's trying to deal with girlhood and choosing your own um, a kind of like self fashioning theme of you know becoming who you want to be. Um, taking control of, you know, your life, um, so on and so forth. Um, this kind of empowerment, uh, angle is, is running throughout this, um, in, in a way that I'll just kind of leave that out there for now, um, because Mm -hmm. I think it's pretty evident if, if you watch the series that it's trying to do this. Um, to go a little deeper, 
and this is the part that I think is interesting. Um, I think there is a very powerful tension in Ray Earth between, on one hand, that, um, this constant insistence on Sephiro being a land of will, where you can um, will things to happen, you can do this self-fashioning, you can, you know, become who you want to be. Um, with the uh, equally powerful reality of like what I'll just call destiny or like predestination. Um, so like while at in the very same moment um, there's all this rhetoric about like, oh yeah, like it's a land of will. Like if you believe it, it will happen. Um, these characters are not like in Sephiro voluntarily. Um, mm-hmm. they've been conscripted into this, into this world, um, into this narrative, um, that like, yeah, I mean, once they're conscripted, they're like eventually convinced and, uh, you know, identify with it after the fact. But there's, uh, this kind of constant looming backdrop of like, you are going to become the magic knights. Like you have to. Or else the world is going to crumble. And by the way, like if if that happens, you're never going back to Tokyo. Um, and you're yeah, like right. the implication being that you're going to die. Um, mm-hmm. And also, you have to save Sephiro before you can go back to Tokyo. Right. Yes. Like you don't have a choice. Like you are, like you girls are going to become this. Um, you are like the figures in this narrative, in this like world historical narrative of Sephiro that like is so much like greater than you um, and like has nothing to do with like your choice or your prior life um, and has been foisted upon you. Um, so there's this constant tension between like, you know, an external identity uh, being foisted upon you. And then this kind of more, you know, let's just say like an internal conception of identity um, or an organic or self-generated one. Um, and they're both like insisted upon at the same time, um, in a way that I think is like, you know, falling into the trap of using this word again, um, in a way that I think is like intentionally paradoxical because of how it, it emerges, this tension emerges as a major, major thing for, um, for the series and, and ultimately how I think we interpret it. But, um, yeah, there's this constant paradox of like, you know, social expectations or like the world's expectations of who you need to be, who you should be. Um, and there's a, I think the series is pretty firm about like, yeah, this has real weight in determining who you are and can't be ignored. Um, but then also this insistence on like, oh yeah, like, no, 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 just like choose who you want to be. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and it, there's this kind of, uh, I think a working question is like, you know, can, people be who they want to be um or like is identity you know formed which way um is is more powerful or is it somehow like in this paradox um i think that like that is very important to have like in the background uh, whenever you're watching through even these early episodes well, and I think this is like a running theme through a lot of like coming of age stuff for young women. Um, and like, 
like it brings to mind Nausicaa and it brings to mind um, the Earthsea books for me. Um, and it's just like coming of age stories for men are so much about uh, creating des- your destiny and choosing like choosing your destiny and like taking the reins of these things. And, and so much like coming of age stuff for young women is about um, being born into an expectation that you will not only that you will do something, but that you will be something that you will be like the magic knight who saves Sephiro like, or the princess or whatever. Yeah, yeah. exactly. And like, yeah, it's, I think it's like a very, um, I think it's a very common premise. And I like the way that, um, Ray earth is starting to like, look at those things and like, like is I think is doing that and is doing it with intentionality so that it can like make a point about it in the way that like all those you know other pieces of media that I'm talking about are also making points about that and about how like women often don't get uh, the same sorts of choices that men do you know yeah um, yeah and that this show like literalizes that tension with mm-hmm. like the yes. way that the world is constructed in a way that uh like i think this will be a thing that will recur throughout the show which is that i i think it has a tendency to like literalize these tensions um, yes in a way where it can like very explicitly play with like here's what's happening in the plot in terms of like let us like literally just make characters that are embodiments of things <laughs> um <laughs> And not just cars. Um, in order to like be able to 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 set these things off, um, which gestures towards like a, a certain fairy tale reading that I think mm-hmm. comes up here. Um, this will also be something that when we talk about Utena, like for me, Utena is such a fairy tale. Um, I like actually get annoyed with readings of Utena that like ignore how much of a fairy tale it is and where they're like, let's break down the lore because I'm like, no, like you don't need the lore of the forest. The forest is just the forest. Like mm-hmm. <laughs> the mm-hmm. forest means a thing in fairy tales and you can just accept that and move on. Um, and I, I think Ray Earth operates with a similar logic. Um, and so much of the, the beginning of this too is like, almost setting up the like some of the slow pacing uh, of the first season to me feels to some degree, like let us actually like set up what are, what is the, the rules of the universe and like, what are the the characters and how are all these things figuring so that we can like further develop it as it goes on in a way that, I mean, in my mind, I'm like comparing to, cause I'm currently reading through way of Kings where I think like a ton of, way of kings is just setting up like here's the the rules of the world at the beginning so that we can like actually mm-hmm. then play with it as it goes on um i'm getting to the part where it's a lot more exciting now <laughs> <laughs> um i um, i'll just say my last thing about this uh for me is just that like the thing the thing that really strikes me about the first couple episodes of ray earth is that it's like so in a way that I think a lot of anime can be, I think it is so much about wish fulfillment. It is about, like, what if you got Isekai'd, and it was Dragon Quest, and it was Sailor Moon, and also Mecha showed up in episode 10, <laughs> and also this, and also that. Like, it is sort of all these, like, wish fulfillment, like, fantasy things of anime, like, rolled into one thing, and so making it, like, 
making that like the literal texture of the fantasy universe that they exist in where like, yeah, it's wish fulfillment because the you go to the place where wish fulfillment happens. You know, <laughs> I think it's just good. I think it's just good. Yeah. Yeah. I think the other thing about the early episodes is that, and this is like kind of touching on your point, Mia, um, the like the style of the like the style of the episodes in and of itself i think like conveys um this tension that we're talking about where like and you know listeners uh autumn nia if you agree but also listeners um the first couple episodes are like totally disorienting the progression is like it's like slapdash you're just getting like all of this exposition thrown at you the like dialogues are all like very stylized things are just happening in a way that it it's not like the progression doesn't seem coherent it doesn't seem well ordered it doesn't seem organic and i think to me like the effect of this is that it creates this sense of like confusion and impolation where like we the viewer um feel like we're just being pulled forward by this like force of necessity but we don't understand why or like where we're going and i think that i think that is reflective as well of like the experience of the characters um who you know as we've been talking about like they enter into this world and it's so much just about like you've been pulled here because of like this necessity of like Sephiro, blah, 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 like that you have no fucking idea what's going on, but you're just going to like, you're just like now conscripted into this. And I think the, like the actual style of the first couple episodes conveys this really well. Um, and then around like episode four, I think is where I noticed it starts to like settle down. Um, and, uh, become a little more coherent and it's it's almost like it's um literalizing the process of identification like where we as the viewer we're like okay yeah i'm identifying with this narrative like i play dragon quest like i'm recognizing these like tropes and stuff i i have a sense of what's going on and i'm like bought into it um around the same time that like the girls are like they they make the switch from being like i just want to go back to tokyo to like, oh, okay, yeah, like, I'm a magic knight. And uh, that's one of the um, things that I think is really interesting about the first couple episodes um, as well. Like, that the way that the actual style of the narrative, like, underscores um, some of the stuff that we're talking about. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm going to, like evoke a game that i love that i know neither of you have played um some of it this game reminds me or some of this anime reminds me of chrono cross as well as like chrono cross is a game that is very invested in um like what does it mean to be a sequel to chrono trigger like what does it mean to be continuing to make jrpgs and is like kind of aware of the formulas of jrpgs and is beginning to interrogate like there is a, a forced linearity to older games like even Chrono Trigger, despite the the time travel, but then especially things like Dragon Quest, where like the the plot propels you because it's literally the only thing that you can do. 
and Colonel Cross starts to to look at and think about like what w- what did it mean to actually be this character where you are like being forced into this role and having to fulfill these duties um and then like actually having a crisis of self while you're doing it because um that's actually like a very weird position to be in and i think magic knight ray earth touches on this a little bit although chrono cross like gets way deeper into it which also makes sense it was made like years after ray earth came out but it's also something that i think is that the like when this when I see Ray Earth pulling on JRPGs, I think part of what they are pulling on is the way that like games, especially of this era were so like fatalistic in terms of like, this is what you have to do. Like you have this illusion of choice and yet you are continuing to be propelled along this plot because it's like literally the only thing you can do. I mean, Dragon Quest has the whole joke of like, you go to talk to the, the woman and she's like but you love me or whatever and then if you say like no she'll just like continue to say like uh don't you though until like basically you say <laughs> yes like you you literally like it just becomes like an endless loop where you have to just like agree that you love her um which like is obviously dragon quest kind of lampooning some of it but um like i i think the this what what i find interesting especially with like the first season of ray earth is the way that it is like pulling on that aspect of the the genre and starting to draw out like what does it actually mean to be like in this world that is supposedly you can do anything and yet also you are on this like fixed path mm-hmm. of progression towards like you have become a magic knight and you like defeat the the villain at the end and the world is saved and that's like this is the plot that you're committed to so unless people have other thoughts maybe this is a good moment to like jump on to six through ten and yeah and continue on yeah i'll uh i'll go ahead and kick off the synopsis here so uh yeah um after acquiring the escudo the magic knights return to master smith prisea's home and give her their weapons in the escudo um their their rental weapons um and so, you know, so she kind of begins creating their new weapons, um, and outside they hear a monster attack. Um, this monster is the Caterpillar-esque Adelante. Um, I don't think we need to do the monster descriptions like we did with Ava, um, but it's kind of like a caterpillar. It's a, uh, a beast summoned by the six-year-old Ascot. Um, <laughs> they try to defeat Adelante with magic, um... You know, Hikaru casts fire. I think she casts thunder too. I'm using Final Fantasy VIII magic. That's the joke. Um, but uh, they all use their magic, and it just like grows stronger every time, um, absorbing like their magic, um, and eventually it transforms into like this big evil butterfly thing. Um, the monster it smashes into the room where Prisea is uh, finishing the forging the weapons. Um, and some rocks land on her, and she is mortally wounded. Um, the Magic Knights then level up their weapons, um, which allows them to defeat Adelante for some reason. Um, <laughs> and unfortunately, uh, though, uh, they are unable to save Prisea, who um, who dies, you know, tragically. Yeah. Uh, next episode. So while traveling, the Magic Knights speak their wishes into the stone that Ferio gave uh, to Fu. They are still unaware that it's basically a pager slash yak back hybrid. 
Um, What's a yak then... Speaking through Makona, <laughs> Clef informs the Magic Knights uh, that they must awaken the Rune Gods. Uh, I have a little note here. I actually didn't mention this when we went through the, the Rare Earth character names. So in Japanese, they're just called a machine, um, which is oh. obviously just machines um i think that the english name here rune gods is constructed from the fact that like all three of them are like a single japanese kanji and then god so it's like you know flame god wind god or whatever Mm -hmm. um so i think that's why they they call them rune gods in the english translation but um yeah the japanese is just machine (laughs) okay Um, that is the one instance so far that i'm like ah i wish i was watching the sub then (laughs) yeah (laughs) Um, so then Ferio encounters Ascot and claims to want to help Ascot defeat the Magic Knights, um, and become Ascot's apprentice. Um, Ascot summons Pajero, which is like the sandworm from Dune or a crate dragon from Star Wars or whatever the monsters and tremors are called. Uh, it's, it's a, yeah, it is a, a monster. It is a worm that is under the sand. Um, this is actually, why I tweeted today. Um, is there any way I can cross the desert without attracting the worm? Yeah. <laughs> um, it's actually also somewhat like the uh, vaginal water monster, the water angel in Evangelion, um, in terms of its appearance. Um, but anyway... Pajero tries to attack the Magic Knights, but uh, Ferio uses the yakback feature here on uh, his little pager stone in order to play the voice. So, like, Ascot had Pajero learn the voices of the Magic Knights, but then Ferio is using that yakback feature to distract them and lure them away. Wait, um, what's a yakback? <laughs> <laughs> so, Fu is wounded and eventually awakens to uh, her new power and her desire to protect Ferio. Um, and also to some degree her girlfriends um and her sword levels up and she this is like one of the coolest like uh shots in the episodes we watched is just like pajero going to like eat food and she just cuts like down the middle like seerther slaying the dragon favnir um a reference that i'm sure both of you get Um, oh i saw it and i was like oh this is like when ray cut that uh TIE Fighter up in episode 7. Shut the fuck up. J.J. <laughs> Abrams do the, was watching Rare. <laughs> do the synopsis for the next episode. I'm Okay. <laughs> I'm gonna read the synopsis. I just want everybody to know that Nia wrote these and I'm reading this under duress. Mm. Um, the Magic Knights <laughs> come across a monster hunting Oh. The Magic Knights come across a monster hurting and killing animals. Hikari rescues a poor little dog-like animal and adopts it and names it Hikari after her own dog. Unfortunately, little Hikari is actually Vigor, the new monster of the week summoned by Ascot. Vigor eventually turns on the Magic Knights, transforming into a giant wolf. Hikaru uh, still refuses to attack Vigor until Umi is like, Look, Hikaru, I love you, but you have to understand that sometimes you have to kill the monster, even if it was a cute puppy earlier, or else I, your girlfriend, am literally going to die along with all the other animals in the forest. Hikaru eventually... Hikaru finally gets her new strength of heart and her sword levels up and she uses it to slay the beast. Uh, Shortly thereafter, uh, Alcione tricks Ascot into releasing her from her imprisonment uh, to help him defeat the Magic Knights, <clears throat> but uh, someone predictably betrays him, 
um, freezing Ascot and his uh, beast friend, Ducey, and using her magic. Um, there's something weird going on here. It's like, whatever. Um, <laughs> using, yeah, using the beast's body as like a source of magic power um, to create like this magic blizzard, basically. Around this time, like Umi, um, well, earlier, Umi and Fu and Hikaru, they all make a wish for Umi to return to Tokyo. But really, Umi is the one who, who really wants to go back to Tokyo um, so she can win her fencing tournament and impress the girl that she has a crush on. Um, yeah, her captain. Um, that's, we'll probably never, we'll probably not discuss that at all. Um, and uh, <laughs> at the time that, um, you know, that this blizzard, like, happens, um, she's, for some reason, transported to a version of Tokyo Tower Frozen in Time. Meanwhile, uh, Hikaru and Fu, like, struggle, are actually in this blizzard, struggling, uh, slowly freezing, um, and they basically almost succumb to hypothermia. Uh, but right before the, the moment uh, where Alcione finishes them off, um, Umi hears the cries of her girlfriends and breaks from the illusion, uh, returning to Sephiro. She then faces off against Alcione in a sword fight, um, and now moving beyond her selfish desire to return home, and filled with a determination to save her girlfriends and also Sephiro. Um, can you tell who wrote these synopses? Um, <laughs> Umi's weapon levels up, and she defeats Alcione, ending the blizzard and uh, saving the day. It's it's canon, Connor. <laughs> It's it's, it's, yes. it's Ghost Divers canon. Also, Umi definitely has a crush on the fencing girl. Oh yeah, and is trying yeah. to impress yes. her. Yeah, you you didn't like go into the, that's also canon. This is why I don't think Umi has ever loved a man in her life. <laughs> yeah, no, we're we're all on the same page there. I think. Anyway, episode ten. The Magic Knights reach the ocean and are guided by Makona in a magical bubble platform into a water temple under the sea. So we have our water temple level here. Um, Umi is drawn deeper into the temples towards a giant mural of a blue dragon, which then comes to life and like emerges from the mural. Hikaru and Fu are forced out of the room while Umi is being past- uh, tested by this dragon. And they both end up encountering Ascot, who is uh, piloting a new humanoid and somewhat mech-like beast that he summoned called Capella. Uh, So they struggle against the beast for a while, um, think that they defeat it, but it actually rises again. Uh, They're unable to defeat it here. Um, Meanwhile, in the room, the water dragon, who is the rune god, Salis, tells Umi to abandon her friends and flee so that she can live to save Sephiro as a magic knight. Uh, but Umi basically says, like, I can't abandon my girlfriends. Uh, I don't need a rune god if having a rune god means that I have to not be gay. Um, and of course, this is actually a test. Salus was just like, are you gay enough for me? Um, and is so impressed by how gay she is for Ikaru and Fu that uh, Salus transforms into a giant mecha and just like absolutely wrecks Capella, just like fucks him up entirely. Um, Salus then basically <laughs> says, unfortunately, there's a lower requirement for using me as equipment and you haven't hit it yet. So I'll see you later. Uh, it's not the mecha season yet. You just have a little glimpse of me. Um, so Umi doesn't have... Umi has the mech, but can't use it yet. It's in her inventory, but you can't equip it yet. It'll, you have to level up a little more first. Mm. Okay. So yeah, that, that's episode six through ten. <laughs> I have a confession to make. 
Go ahead um, and confess. I think I already know this. <laughs> so sometimes uh, I have a bad attention span. <laughs> and so I was like, why is Nia so insistent that this person, is, like this fencing captain, is Umi's girlfriend? And while you were synopsizing episode 10, I just went and rewatched uh, episode 9. Wow. Um, and that was fast. Uh, well, I jumped ahead to the I jumped ahead to the dream sequence. Um, she's in love with that girl, huh? Yeah. Like, <laughs> she's in love with this girl. I don't I don't think they're girlfriends, but I like she has a huge crush on that girl. This is very, very, very similar to, um, oh, I don't recall her name, but Orange Hair Girl's uh, dynamic in um, Utena. I cannot recall her name. I'm sorry. Yeah. Um, um, also, just like the reverse of like the protagonist and the best friend in um, Aim for the Ace. Yeah, we we will get to the Utena one. Um, this was one that uh, so back in the day, I like I don't actually know what the subtitles were, but there was a larger attempt, I think, to efface the queerness uh, of Utena, um, just in terms of like marketing and how it was translated and everything. And so I was rewatching it lately, and I was like, oh yeah, this is the one where like again, it's this this fencing situation, um, or whatever. Uh, I think it's Julie is the name of her. The, the orange haired girl mm-hmm. um Judy. and i was just like oh yeah this is the this is the part that um is like really heavily queer coded but they're like doing this whole thing of oh but really she likes the guy but no in the the like new translation it is just like no it's fucking gay <laughs> that's the whole thing <laughs> at the end <laughs> um and yeah it's this it's the same vibe here just years earlier and less explicit, <laughs> but still there. It's still very gay. Yeah, yeah. It's it's like I mean, it's what you described earlier with episode one, where all of the like hallmarks of like anime romance framing are like fully present. Um, this flashback sequence, like the introduction of this character of the captain, is just like. I don't know how you account for it any other way if you don't yeah. like it, it factor this in at least a little bit um, because it's so like it's just so overwhelmingly like functioning <laughs> in this way <laughs> um, that like and I don't know if the character of the captain like does she come up again I can't remember um. Yeah, I don't remember. I know that she doesn't in the second season, but I don't know if she comes up again in in the first season. I'm trying to remember. Yeah, like uh, all all the more to the point of just like, you know, what is the function of this if it's not like, you know, what we're talking girl about? That I yeah, here's yeah, this girl this that is- I had a crush on. Oh wait, actually Hikaru is my my girlfriend now. I'm going to go save my girlfriends. Yeah, like <laughs> this is my like motivating like first love crush thing that like we're introducing as like you know, to round out my character or whatever. 
um, mm-hmm. and then tie back into whatever's happening right now. Um, yeah, I, yeah, it's canon. It's just canon. It's just canon. It's also like, this is, I, I'm all about like resonance over representation as a thing. And like, I don't need any sort of potential thing to point to, to be like, no, this is just very gay. This whole series is incredibly gay. Um, but a thing that Clamp has also talked about with Cardcaptor Sakura, which came out shortly after Ray Earth, was that after Ray Earth, they wanted to be more intentional, uh, intentional about like portraying queer characters well. <laughs> yes. Um, and that's a thing that they've specifically talked about with Cardcaptor Sakura, which I think is also pointing towards like they knew what they were doing here. <laughs> I I don't think there's any other way to read this. The, like me missing this, me thinking you were exaggerating is entirely me not paying attention. Like it is what is happening in the episode. <laughs> that is entirely on me having a bad attention span because I think there's literally no other way to read this than it is gay. <laughs> okay, okay. I I just don't think I don't think there is any other way to read what is happening in the scene other than homosexuality. <laughs> so I was I was wondering if you were like I was wondering if you were about to say like that this scene when you were watching it, it just became like so true to life that you actually forgot you were watching Magic, Magic Night Ray Earth. And then it didn't even <laughs> register as like uh that like part of the show. And so you forgot it. No, but because by the time I was um choosing words carefully here. By the time I was a person interacting with femininity uh, attracted to other feminine people, um, I I chose those words because I don't really think of myself as a woman, but I do think of myself as like a trans femme person. Anyway, by the time I was like that, um, I I was more in tune with my feelings to where I was like, oh, I'm head over heels for this girl. And like... I definitely had a lot of, like, oblivious attraction as a kid in the same way that, um, like, I had a, a, lot, a lot of oblivious homo attraction as a teenager in the same way that Umi did, but it was all me being a boy attracted to boys, and it's just a very different, like, just a very different vibe, <laughs> you know? I don't know, but I understand what, you, what you've presented to me. <laughs> I mean, I've already told the story on this this podcast about watching uh, Fred and play Final Fantasy Nine and the scene where uh, Dagger cuts her hair off, and I just palpably in that moment felt extremely gay in a way that I didn't want to confront. So, um, I I fully identify with this. <laughs> so there there was this boy in high school, and we were sitting in his room passing a cigarette back and forth, listening to Lana Del Rey songs on his vinyl record player, and he was telling me about this other boy's dick that he sucked, and I felt jealousy in my heart, and then I was like, but I'm not gay, so that doesn't make any sense. All right, well, <laughs> moving on. And <laughs> didn't examine that feeling for a couple <laughs> years, <laughs> which is very different than what I think um, uh, Umi is going through here, I think. Um I, I also I think it's different in like when you're I think playing sports with people is like a very emotionally charged thing in a way that um you know like Lana Del Rey isn't 
<laughs> he's, he's, Lana Del Rey. <laughs> Sitting in a bedroom, listening to Lana Del Rey and, and passing a cigarette back and forth is like very um, relaxed, very cozy. Whereas like if you're fencing together, like you two are at like an emotional 10 at all times. Cause I think especially in high school sports, but in all levels of at like being an athlete is like being your most raw emotional self in front of people constantly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, um, that was definitely my experience at, well, <clears throat> the, um, <laughs> The emotional part of it was definitely my experience as an athlete. Um, so I, I I know what you mean there. Um, this yeah, was... I feel like. Are, do you are, want me to? Do you want me to ripcord you? From are we on the podcast to... again? Yeah, I, I started this all by making a dumb fucking joke. <laughs> I just, if you put me in front of a microphone, I'm gonna podcast. Yeah. So. I can't tell you how often Nora and I are having a normal conversation and we like keep going for 20 minutes and then one of us is like, we're just doing export right now. Just like. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I feel like my closest parallel here is like, especially if I'm thinking of like my high school punk days um, is being in the mosh pit, which I think ha- is not the same as sports, but has a certain amount of like. When you go into a mosh pit, you are just, like, literally going into, like, move your body in ways that should probably be embarrassing, except for the fact that everyone else is doing it. And you're just, like, smashing your body up against a bunch of other people's bodies um, to this to this degree where, like, when I went and moshed after my second girlfriend who was abusive broke up with me, I had to go sit in my car for, like, 15 minutes to a half hour to, like, sober up from moshing. And just, like, smoke a cigarette to focus to drive home. Um, and that is that is an experience that, um, in retrospect, was also incredibly gay. Um, and in a, I think of a different way than sports. Like, this is, like, a very direct rivalry where I think, like, a very intense, um, like, attraction to a singular person can more readily develop. Whereas a mosh pit is, like, literally just, like, throwing yourself into an orgy. <laughs> Um, I, this has nothing to do with uh, rares, like zero things to do with rares. Welcome can to I, Ghost Divers. Can I, can I tell a story? Yes. It's about the first time I smoked weed, which you just reminded me of. Oh yeah, I think we both we we love these. We love this kind of story yeah. in Ghost Divers. I feel like I've told the story on a podcast somewhere before, but I don't know. You haven't on um, Ghost Divers, so. <laughs> So the first time I smoked weed, um, there's a boy in my high school who ended up going to the same college that I did, and we didn't hang out for, like, the first year of college, and, like, the sophomore year, I went over to his house a couple times, and we hung out, like, a couple times, not that much, and, like, maybe the second time I went over to his house, he's like, hey, do you want to smoke weed? I was like, sure, and he's like, do you smoke much? I was like... Yeah, I smoke all the time. Smoke every day. You know, I know all about weed. Um, he's like, have you ever dabbed before? I was like, yeah, I dabbed no. like two days ago. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know what that was. <laughs> Had no idea. 
So I went to the bathroom and watched a video on YouTube about how to tap. And I was like, this will be fine. (laughs) Was it fine? It was not fine. (laughs) We started playing. We we smoked. And then we started playing Splinter Cell. And we got on this first level of Splinter Cell for three and a half hours. Because we were too high to figure out how to play it. (laughs) And at the time, I lived about three blocks away from him. And after like three or four hours, I was like, I'm going to go home. And he's like, do you think you can drive? I was like, yeah, I can drive. (laughs) I drove, it was like three or four blocks on like, you know, 20 mile an hour roads. It was all neighborhood roads. And I think it took me 45 minutes to go home because oh I was God. just inching along. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Um, anyway, don't drive under I'm, the influence. It's a really bad idea. It's the only time yeah. in my life I've ever done that. I'm going to, I'm going to also digress right now. And so the first time, so I, I was friends with a bunch like i was a full-on punk kid and i was friends with a bunch of punk kids and they were all also stoners and for a while i was like the straight edge one i was the one who like was not drinking was not smoking pot um any of that stuff and then i i just like really started going through some tough shit and i just fell really deep into it but the cool thing about it was that I had hung out with those kids for so long that everyone was so excited that I was smoking now that I literally never bought weed because everyone always wanted to get me high. Um, and so, I, like, the first time I got high was just, like, literally I'd been hanging out with the people for a while and I was just like, yeah, it hit me up um, and got extremely, extremely high. And they did this initiation game with me called Pack of Newports, where you have to... Uh, impersonate or like embody someone going in to buy a pack of Newports um, and it always starts with Kramer doing a pack of Newports because I think this is like a Seinfeld thing I don't really remember it anymore um, but and then you have to continue to do it until you get everyone to laugh and the one where I finally got everyone to laugh was I had to be a pack of Newports <laughs> going in to buy a pack of Newports um, and we were just like smoking in the woods doing this game and I just went in and I said, can I have a pack of me? And then I just like fully just like let my body fall over um, into like sticks and shit, like hurt myself. And that finally made everyone laugh hard enough. So um, <laughs> that was the first time I got really, really high, which was the first time I smoked. So <laughs> I had a pretty similar story once, like after that first experience where I was like trying to impress this guy, it was like. The, the next couple times I was smoking weed was like with other friends were like, oh, you've never smoked weed. Let me just give you weed. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Even though like it was like three months of doing this and they were still like, oh, you don't smoke weed. I was like, I literally got high with you like the last three days in a row. But all right, sure. <laughs> yeah. Everyone's just very excited about it. Um, <laughs> when you're the friend who didn't but now is. <laughs> yeah. Um. Anyway, do we want to talk more about Magic Knight Ray Earth, or Connor, do you have any good getting high stories? I do, but uh, let's 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 save those for another day. Dude, uh, we are running long. <laughs> yeah, um, we're we're quickly approaching the Tarkovsky limit. Um, so, and we still we're not even halfway. I'm just saying, as long as we never get to Berlin Alexander plots, I'm fine. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, we're we we measure our podcast entirely on uh, bench, uh, modernist uh, literary and filmic benchmarks. 
Um, <laughs> so, uh, yeah, okay. Um, back to Rayearth. I guess we've uh, already done the synopsis. So um, I'm just going to tee this up if anyone wants to um, discuss 6 through 10 before I start hitting my notes here. You you go, because I have a couple loose thoughts, but I... I... I haven't. I don't have a through line in my head at all. So, like, maybe like some structure is good here. Yeah. Um, okay. Well, I'll start out with. Um, I'll actually start out with a note I had for one through five. Um, but Nia wanted me to to do it later, so I'll just I'll, I'll go into that right now. Um, so at the same time that Ray Earth is like erecting modes of like femininity. Uh, and like kind of contrasting them with one another. It's also doing the same thing, uh, to a slightly lesser extent, I think, or lesser quantity, um, with kind of like modes of masculinity. Um, I think we have, um, I'm not going to touch on Clef here because I don't have like a lot, uh, and I think it, it makes a little more sense to maybe do that later. Um, but specifically around Zagato and Furio, who are the two like um, men that we've seen most of so far, we have, uh, it, we have Zagato who is um, a, an adult man. Um, he's clearly capable because he's like, you know, the evil wizard, like main antagonist, but with his capability also comes uh, he's violent um, controlling insofar as we know, um, and, and abusive. Not only has he like kidnapped Emerald, um, and is holding her hostage for some weird reason, but he's also, um, has this kind of sway over Alcione. Um, and, you know, there's a, uh, there's definitely a dysfunctional dynamic there where he is, uh, you know, violent towards her, uh, exercising this kind of domineering authority. Uh, on the yeah, other hand, we find out we find out in these episodes, like in towards the end of the, like I think it's episode nine or whatever, uh, that Alcione loves Zagato, but like we just see Zagato being like, "You failed me. I'm imprisoning you." <laughs> yeah, I think it's actually in episode four where they're like, "Alcione, why are you doing this?" And they're like, and she's like, "Oh, I do it because I love Zagato, and I'm just like doing this all for him because he wants me to." Yeah. Or, or whatever. I can't remember the exact episode, but, but yeah, exactly as you said. And, uh, on the other hand, we have Furio. Furio, uh, is adolescent. So he's somewhere between like child, teenager, just like the girls are. Um, he is, I think we can agree. He's pretty much, he's incapable. His incapability it, is made into a, a point several times here. But he is, uh, he's also shown to be, to have some kindness. Unlike Zagato and Alcione, um, Furio has no power in his relationship with Fu, which is, um, the, the series seems to have fun with this, um, by subverting the damsel in distress trope twice, actually. Um, first with the evil rock that Fu saves him from. Um, and then also with the, uh, sandworm or whatever, where he's just going to like pointlessly sacrifice himself and, uh, Fu saves him then again. Um, and also Fu is not really taken in by his lies. So, uh, 
you know, he, he has no, uh, he has no kind of, um, power in this relationship. Uh, and yet this is the relationship that is, uh, between these two. Um, this is a relationship that is actually shown to be viable. So we're already getting, um, in the same way that like it, it, it's doing with femininity, um, rare earth is doing this kind of, uh, modeling of masculinity, creating these, these types and then, setting them into like a constellation with, you know, the, the other characters and the types that they represent. Uh, I also think that this ties back into the, the way that masculinity is modeled here. Um, I think it ties back into this. Um, I guess I could call it a project of like young girls empowerment or whatever. Um, the idea, the theme that we talked about before of like, you know, young girls, controlling their destiny, um, something that I think Rare Earth is engaging with, you know, modeling uh, masculinity in, in these two relationships in this way, um, I think is is, is reinforcing uh, this dynamic. Yeah, I mean, uh, Ferio definitely is the uke to, to Fu Semi, so... <laughs> <laughs> um. Am I the only one who knows Yahweh terminology? <laughs> yeah, I think so. Okay. Yes, Ferio <laughs> is the bottom to Fu's top. Okay. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Except I can't Furio. believe... I, I can very much believe that Connor does not know Yaoi terminology. I, I'm surprised, Autumn. <laughs> I tried to... I... So, one of the many things that, like, kind of tipped me off to maybe like gender stuff is that like despite being a guy who was very attracted to guys just never enjoyed like mlm porn <laughs> so i don't know much yaoi terminology because i didn't like consume much of it <laughs> anyway yeah, I, I tried to help you out there nia um <laughs> Yeah. Um, so yeah, I mean, I don't know if you'll have any comments on this um, or Furio generally. I didn't I, have a lot about Furio, but I did have, I did have more gender thoughts relating to um, uh, Persea here. Um, but I, if if Nia, you had more about Furio, I don't want to like totally divert off of that. Yeah, I mean. Some of this is like there there's stuff that's gonna happen as it goes on to to season two where um like relationships get recentered in different ways within the plot mm-hmm. um i I do so like me watching through this i I like Ferio as a character um even as like like I know that you Connor don't really like Ferio. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Yeah. But there, there is a certain appeal to me, like specifically as someone who is coming to the series and like watching it again as some attempt of like, let me as this person coming out as trans, like reach out and reclaim some sort of um, like girlhood that I was denied of just being like, this is just like this. This is this like version uh, of malehood that is like non-threatening in a certain way where mm-hmm. I think it makes sense that he is set up as like the chief male love interest in this series, mm-hmm. um, which again, for these 
10 episodes seem to be more preoccupied with the like polycule of Hikaru, Umi, and Fu, but is also kind of setting up like here, here's the one like token straight romance in the series for you to, to look at. And it's specifically around Ferio as this like non-threatening man who um, has hints of danger, but only to the extent where that can be fun or exciting and not to the extent of like this, this is actually uh, threatening. Like he, he's never actually a threat. He's just kind of like fun and bratty and like mysterious. Mm-hmm. It, um, he's almost a new Yasha, except he's not quite cool enough to be that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, um, he, he thinks he is, but he's not. <laughs> Inuyasha has like a tiny bit more edge of actual danger than Ferio, who again yes. is just a Honda Civic. Um truly the like workhorse <laughs> sedan of B- Bishonin right here. Um <laughs> So my thought about Perseo was uh, in episode, is it six? It's six. Mm-hmm. Um, is just that like, and it, so we, we've seen now two adult women in this series. One is Alcyone, who is tall and big boobed and scantily clad and like this sort of like dangerous femininity. And then Perseo shortly before dying um it like it just it dresses herself in these like flowy beautiful white robes that like express the like purity of her womanhood and like she is going to like pour her energy into like tools that will help these young girls take care of themselves and go back out into the world and she's like literally like becomes a mother essentially to these girls and then dies (laughs) and that is like the most pure sort of woman you can be in this sort of like at least right now at least right now where we're at the most pure and perfect woman you can be is uh become a mother and die so your children can surpass you (laughs) yeah that or emerald or emerald who is like presented similarly in some ways like so yeah. perfectly pure and motherly that like she's been shuffled off of screen because if she was around there wouldn't be any problems. If you yeah, could just the- get back to your mother's embrace, there wouldn't be problems. <laughs> yeah, there's a thing with Emerald as like a quick tangent where um, Emerald is simultaneously so she's like this totally idealized figure, like, like as you're pointing out, and she's simultaneously relegated to the status of like child and also mother in a way that I'm, I'm sure we could discuss like the implications of that for, you know, presenting femininity um, and like and female sexuality. Um, But yeah, sorry for just like barging with the tangent there. No, no, that was perfect. That was, I finished out what I was going to say and I think you built off of it. So Um, yeah, I think, We'll definitely also have more with Emerald at the um, like the second half of season two. Um, yeah, where I that think... that might become very significant what we just talked about. Yeah, <laughs> um, but I I do think too like what what both of you are hitting on is there is a certain amount of 
like to to put it from the western perspective the way that it's often talked in the west is like the whore versus the madonna of like alcione right. being the whore um especially emerald being like the full madonna of <laughs> like she is this uh virginal like young woman who is set up to like take on the the burdens of society and then for like Persea is like that but applied slightly more to like oh i have a profession um like i i think the part which you have a note here connor that's like interesting about Persea is the fact that her being this master smith is like this thing that it is masculine coded and i think it's also like not directly by like the character's to the full extent or the world. I think they like very briefly touch on this, but like it, it is specifically, I think also setting up within the show that like you hear that she's a master Smith and she's going to create weapons. And when she goes to do it, like you as a viewer are expecting like, okay, like where's the forge, where's the hammer. And instead right. it's like literally let the, uh, like flowing white gown, like extend out and like bathe this ore with light and i'm going to like will it into the shape of weapons um like the way that she's performing this thing that normally would be portrayed as this like very like here's the hot fire here's the iron here's the hammer is also then like subsumed into this more uh pure white feminine like version of it um and yeah, and then and then she dies <laughs> tragically. I'm I'm yeah. I'm kind of laughing because I know more about the story, but um, yeah, we'll get um, there. There, yeah, there's certainly no more further developments with Prisea. Um <laughs> Yeah, I think there's stuff that we can. Yeah, just like Nia said, they'll be developed further. Um, I think this whole smithing sequence. Uh, I put a note. I put this note in here because I. I thought it was. I found it interesting um, watching it again, how much it seems to be, um, although it is tied into like this kind of symbolic purity and uh, the things that we've been discussing, um, it it strikes me as another moment where this, the series is kind of gesturing at like, you know, uh, subverting like masculine authority in this realm um, with this occupation, um, the con not only like, you know, the, the gender of the person who has the occupation, but also the content of the occupation itself, like, Oh no, like this is how you make the ultimate weapon. Like we're not just doing like, you know, Oh, haha. Like you thought I was going to use like a forge and a hammer and like pound on some steel. Like, no, no, no. Like, the the best weapons like the ultimate weapons um there's even like a quotation of like this is how ultimate weapons are made um no no you do it like in this way where like it's this delicate dance and i like softly embrace the ore with my cloth and like you know this this whole like heavily um what i took to be like feminine coded um sequence um so yeah I, i think that just ties into the you know, this other stuff that the, the series seems to be uh, invested in. Yeah. Um, I think, like, I know that there are other notes. I think one of the things I want to touch on is, especially at this point, I think some of the the formula of the first season is becoming clear, where, like, we get, um, 
Episode 7, Fu's weapon evolves. Episode 8, it is Hikaru, uh, Hikaru's weapon who evolves, I believe. Let me like make sure I'm getting this right. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, it is. Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> then episode nine, Umi's weapon evolves, and then we we end on episode ten. Like Umi gets the rune god, and we're like, well, okay, like what's going to happen next is like clearly the other two are going to get their rune gods, <laughs> right? Um, like the the formula is starting to like present itself as like here here are the various steps of progress that they're going on, and we're going to like take turns looking at these um these characters and like seeing them develop and one of the things that i find kind of like interesting or, or one of the tensions that i often have when i think about the series and it, it's one of these things where i like want to get reactions in this moment because my feeling of the series overall and i think we can kind of see it in these first 10 episodes is like again Hikaru is, like, the main character, and this becomes even more pronounced when we get to the second season. Um, Mm -hmm. We'll, like, get into that more when we get there. But is obviously, like, heavily focused on and and has this primacy. Um, And I feel like Umi also gets this, like, fair amount of development. And sometimes I feel like the show doesn't fully know what to do with Fu, other than be like, I guess she's, like, straight. Here's, like, a romance with Ferio. Um, And it it feels like the show is, like, so much less actually interested in Fu's development to me. But I don't know if that's actually just, like, if that's the show or if that's the fact that, like, me being gay, (laughs) I'm like, well, of course I like Hikaru and Umi where, like, their stories are far gayer. (laughs) Um, I mean, I think that the show, like, really tries to do its best by Fu in the, uh, her cutting up that sandworm sequence. Mm. Like, I mm. think the show yeah. is, like, really trying to pour a lot into her as a character in a way that I don't think it did in the first five episodes as much. Yeah. Yeah. I I agree, but I think the thing where I... where I'm with you, Nia, is, like... So I think it's clearly set up, you know, Fu gets a, gets that thing in episode seven, Hikaru in episode eight, and then Umi in episode nine. Um, so this, this like the sequential nature of, of it, e- even further gestures that like, this is what the show is like, quote unquote, trying to do. Um, but I also feel like it, I don't know what we're, what we end up with in episode seven. I had a, a note that I was just like, yeah, whatever. Um, I don't think this was making any point. Um, like she's like being rational and she like tells them, Oh, you know, let's wait. We still have time. He, they're not going to execute Fury. Uh, Ascot's not going to execute Furio for 24 hours. So like, let's, you know, plan this out. Um, which is like, Oh, typical food. That's what, you know, what we know of her. Um, and then like she's just like tossing and turning and she can't sleep or whatever. And, and just goes alone for some reason. Um, and then she saves Furio and she's like, oh, I was really mad at you, but I just came anyway. And then like her sword evolves because of that. Um, I, I I really don't know if... I don't know what to make of all that. And it, it feels like your comment, Nia, mm-hmm. of like, I don't know if the show knows what to do with her. Um, <laughs> yeah, her like trajectory... Um, it doesn't seem quite as clear to me right now um, as like Hikaru and uh, Umi's. 
Yeah, and and some of this is like, I mean, the episodes that it's been the longest since I've watched have been, are like the ones that we are watching next, eleven through nineteen, or yeah, eleven through twenty. Um, and so like some of this might happen more with with Fu, and I'm just like I don't really remember Fu getting Wyndham and like what that whole tension is. Um, but I I just feel like it it is so much clearer to me in this moment of like. I, I kind of know what's happening with Hikaru. There's like, I mean, it, it, right now it keeps being centered around Hikari and this like her pet, but there's still this like clear tension of like, what is it that Hikaru wants? Like she is in many ways, the one who's the most driven and it, like constantly being like, yes, let's save this world. I care about everybody in here. I want to save everyone. Um, Like she is the one who's like, most gung-ho like and just fully accepting of yes i'm going to be this magic knight and save this world um and yet i think also it becomes like it is clear to me already in this moment how much her character is around this tension of like wanting these this like being a person who extends love to everyone because she wants that love returned to her um and i think that is being set up here very clearly and and umi is being clearly set up as this person who is like seeming very self-centered like is the one who keeps being like i just want to go back to tokyo why do i have to do this like can't i just wish to go back to tokyo um i don't want to like be doing this is kind of kind of the whole thing happening here and then the turn being specifically like no i actually care very deeply about these people and that is like a a a reason worth fighting and worth, worth like being in this world um and that's kind of happening with Fu, but I like some of it is like I don't really know what Fu wants, <laughs> really. Um, and some of it is also just like the whole thing that we talked about of like I do really like that Escudo episode, um, that weird, like kind of dreamlike sequence that occurs, and the like what is evoked from my own worst enemy or like the thing that I have to fight is my pet or is my parents like suggests a greater, this person having relations to other people and how they're seeing themselves in relation to other people. Whereas like foo being herself is still a, 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 a like conceivable version of this, but it just doesn't tell me as much about her. And like, why is she, I, I see foo as someone who's reserved and like, doesn't really believe in herself, but I don't really see the like, greater context around that it's just a thing that i'm like asked to believe in her and then she loves fario for some reason (laughs) Um, (laughs) yeah i don't know explain straightness to me connor i don't get it (laughs) i i can't um not in this context because i yeah the romance with fu and furio like i don't get it either so um sorry (laughs) um that that's one of the things where I'm just like, maybe that's rooted in me, like not really liking the Furio character that much. Like I don't see the appeal. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I don't get that. So, you know, whatever, we'll just like throw that, throw that up and uh, you know, we'll let the listeners have that one. Um, <laughs> the, I think it's trying to do something to the effect of like, the most basic way I can state it is like, okay, Umi is really, or not Umi, uh, sorry, Fu 
is like this intellectual nerdy uptight type. Um, she's overly rational and she is like, um, she operates on this like rational basis of, you know, what she thinks is like the most logical, you know, course of action or whatever. Um, her like existing, and, and I think the like breakthrough that's supposed to happen is her like existing in her, her just organically feeling emotions that are, don't need to be rationally justified um, and accepting, like acting on them and accepting them because it's what like she feels um, and, and what she wants to do. And I think that is the progression that is trying to be affected from like this kind of entirely like self-effacing response in the Escudo episode of like, Oh, I value myself because like others value me and I, I can't allow myself to get hurt because others would be sad. Um, it's moving from this like self-effacement to this kind of like, yeah, like I, my own emotions are like valid. Um, and it just so happens to be that I love Furio for some reason. Um, <laughs> and so like, I'm going to just like act on this and, you know, because it's what I want for myself, even if it's not like logical, logically justifiable. Um, and I think that's like, Rare Earth, I just made the best argument I can for you. Um, I think that's what it's kind of trying to do. Um, yeah. So, yeah. Um, we'll see if we, I, we'll see if it, if it does, you know, if it proves me right later on. I I have like <laughs> two final prompts here. One of them I want to save for the very end. So I, I want to open the floor if people have like things they want to talk about first. I'm sleepy, so I'm open to just, like, get down the stretch and wrap this up. <laughs> um, okay. Okay, I have I have a thing with Umi. Um, is it all right if I uh, yeah. go with that? Yeah. Is yeah. that what you were going to do? Yeah. Well, so there's a thing with Umi. I want to talk a little bit about, about Ascot as a character, because we're kind of saying goodbye to him here for, for a bit. Okay. Um, yeah. And then I have my, like, final thing I want to finish on. All right, let's do Ascot's Ascot. fun. Ascot's just like enjoyable in a way that like I never really liked Alcyon as a villain. Um and and so like Ascot just being like really deeply invested in his pets and like <laughs> being very childish is just good. Yeah, so I want to I want to just put a pin in this moment in time. We will revisit this later. I'll remind <laughs> you that you said that Ascot is really fun and enjoyable, and you enjoy this character <laughs> being in the series. Um, I, I want to make it known, though, that they are saying that Ascot is very enjoyable and fun as a childish character. Oh, I know. I know. Yeah. <laughs> I know. But I'm just, just saying. gesturing like, to the future. We'll look back on this moment later. Yeah. Um, I, I think one of the big things that like, stands out to me, especially if we're looking at this arc of 10 episodes, with Ascot is it's like so Ascot has this focus on 
these like pets, these beasts that he's summoning. And I think there's a certain amount that's being paralleled and like episode 10, like draws to a conclusion with Hikaru and like her sense of like pets and animals. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a statement that, that Hikaru makes of like basically lecturing Ascot that like, Oh, you consider them your friends, but like you're using them to hurt others and like putting them in these dangerous situations. And, some of it is like, the, I I do think Hikaru is approaching some of it better than Ascot in terms of like, both trying like wanting to protect and, and take care of the you know false Hikaru or Hikari that um she finds that is actually one of Ascot's pets here, um, but I think there's also a certain amount of like, she's lecturing Ascot, but to a certain degree is also being like, I really love all these people and I love these girls, so I'm gonna like push them to continue to fight. <laughs> <laughs> is like yeah, yeah um somewhat telling on herself here um even as i again i think she is still like ascot is still um clearly being like a little bit crueler to to these animals or these beasts um even as he like has this love for him uh love for them but i think the other thing that um i find interesting with you know like spoilers for the the next ten episodes. I I did the here's the Ray Earth characters for season one. Um, we've seen them so far in the like intro, the the OP here. Um, but you know, Caldina, we briefly get a a like view here is who's next, and then there's also Lafarga. So like, obviously, we're going to have the new villain for a stretch of episodes for a little bit. Um, mm-hmm. but. I think, like, already looking at Alcione versus Ascot, we see Alcione as, like, more directly just uh, coded as villainous. Um, And as someone who just, like, seems to be very, uh, like, just doing evil things and wanting to hurt these girls. Um, Whereas Ascot is, like, that is, like, being tempered. Um, and we're seeing Ascot as someone who's like perhaps slightly more misguided. Like the the childishness is also coming in in terms of like, why are you really helping Zagato when it seems like really what you care about is just like summoning your beasts and playing with them? Mm-hmm. Um, which I think is something that this like series will continue to like. I, I'm kind of signposting here or like flagging this. This will continue to be um, something that will get developed. I think as the this series goes on. Um, so I don't know if, if people have other thoughts here, if we want to move on to some of the stuff you have with Umi, Connor. Uh, no, I, I think that's great. I think that's all perfectly, um, perfectly articulated. Um, yeah, I don't have more right now about that. I'm, I'm looking forward to uh, Ascot's arc in season two. <laughs> um, so um, episode nine, um, <clears throat> we have an Umi episode. Um we uh there is the very gay yeah maybe a little bit um we uh i'm sure we won't talk about that at all um <laughs> the um so tying back into the the character arcs that we've been um trying to develop throughout this episode this episode of ghost divers i mean we we have a lot going on in episode um, nine with Umi's character development. Um, it opens with this nightmare that she's having um, 
of a fencing tournament um, where she's like scoring hits or whatever the fencing dragon is. I don't know. I'm not from rich family, but uh, she's scoring hits. Du pois. <laughs> okay, cool. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, and uh, but they won't. You know, they're not giving her points. Um, and she's just like losing the match no matter what she does. Um, and you know, it goes into the spiral where she's like losing and, you know, um, freaking out about it. Um, so right away we're getting like, not only the, the fencing that she's obsessed with getting back to this fencing tournament, um, but also grounding her, um, this obsession with competition, recognition, um, status, the status that the fencing um, gives her um, her status on the fencing team, all of those things. Uh, the big thing here is we get these uh, this pretty strong link between Alcione and Umi. Again, this is some of the subtle like character di- uh, parallels um, that Rearth likes to do. Um, but we have some visual matches here. Um, we have some cuts from Alcione to, Alcione to Umi early on in the episode. Of course, they're water and ice, so Umi is water magic, Alcione is ice. Um, mm-hmm. Alcione, like Umi, is obsessed with competition and recognition. Um, so she, at the start of this episode, um, she tricks Ascot. Um, she's talking openly about, you know, wanting to defeat the Magic Knights so she can get Zagato's recognition. Um, she clearly, she views it as a competition not only with the, the Magic Knights, but also with Ascot, who she totally like throws under the bus. And I think what's happening here is Alcione is being framed as um, this kind of bad path or the darkest outcome of these characteristics that um, you know she and Umi share in a way. She has uh, maybe gone down the path of succumbing to them more. Um, and, and mm-hmm. as a result, she's become abusive. Like she, again, she betrays Ascot. Um, she does something really bad to Ascot's snail monster. Um, and then she's like pretty openly sadistic, um, with the, uh, magic knights. Um, we cut immediately like from this initial scene of Alcione back to Umi, where she's, you know, frustrated that she can't go back to Tokyo. Um, so she starts and Mokona is like tooling around, uh, like it always does. And Umi starts like, I can't remember exactly what she's doing, but she's like pummeling Mokona. Um, and it's played off as a joke, but it's like, you know, she's taking out her frustration. Um, it's, it's aligned sequentially with Alcione's violence. Um, we have some questioning, you know, the challenging of this wish fulfillment thing, uh, where Umi goes to this fake Tokyo, um, but it's, you know, the wish is coming from um, this selfish place where she is, you know, subordinating others to her um, her desire for competition recognition. And, of course, the world she goes to is, like, completely lifeless. Um, there's no life or future mm-hmm. there. Um, everyone is frozen. And meanwhile, like her, uh, her girlfriends are literally being frozen in a blizzard. Um, <laughs> so we have a lot of these, um, subtle, like symbolic links here going on. Um, 
at the decisive moment, like Umi emerges from her fake her fake frozen Tokyo, and she sees Alcione and says, first thing she says is, "I thought you looked familiar." Which again, you know, we can we can go ahead and run with this and say, you know, Umi recognizes herself in Alcione, but of course, like she um, in this moment is also making the choice to to save her friends. Um, she's seeing the the flaws and you know in her selfishness. Um, she's committing to save Sephiro, um, so she's overcoming this and moving forward. Um, and her sword evolves in this moment. Um, it actually just to you know bring it full circle. The sword animation of it evolving is literally like shattering of ice. And uh, you know she she def- defeats Alcione and. Um, you know, saves the day. Um, and I, I brought this out and then just like went through it in painstaking detail because I think this is the kind of thing that um, this is a, a really good, like representative example of the kind of, uh, of the narrative logic of Earth season one, like the way that it, um, the way that it's often working within this, like maybe uh, seemingly simple trope heavy narrative um, it's actually doing a lot of um, interesting, subtle stuff, and and I think this episode is um, one of the, if I can use the word best, like one of the the best or most interesting examples of this. Yeah, one one thing I want to bring out with that too is uh, one thing, especially on this rewatch, that struck me is so this is one of the moments of the like show most clearly challenging this wish fulfillment of. Um, Oh, I want to return to Tokyo, but then, like, that wish is selfish and, and, like, clearly isn't what she actually wants and it is not going right. But also what she's specifically expressing is, like, I want to, like, go home so that I can win my fencing tournament. And what then happens when she returns to the real world is that she fences with Alcione and wins. Mm-hmm. Um, and so in a, in a certain way, like, she actually does get her wish fulfilled. And it's more about, like figuring out what is it that I want and then aligning it in a way that's like actually going to uh, help others rather than be like the selfish desire that I think is also kind of being pulled out um, in this moment in this scene. Um, And it also being, you know, we have the line of please wait for me, captain, but also I'm going to go with my like new girlfriends now. (laughs) So, um, well, and, and I think this ties in with like, what she ends up doing in episode 10 really well is that like she thinks back to this other relationship where she had where she was kind of like self-sacrificing to try to impress somebody else to try and like win this person's affection by being very good at fencing and um like the thing that she realizes she would much rather do in this new relationship with um Hikaru and Fu is like sacrifice potentially sacrifice herself to protect people she cares about you know and like like it's all about like the intentionality of like why she is being self-sacrificing um that matters here and like i don't know i just think it's good i just think i I think it's good tv (laughs) (laughs) it it definitely is that um and i hope uh well I know um, when when Nia first asked you, like right at the jump of the podcast, 
Uh, I can convince myself I like anything by talking about it enough. So okay, I, that's how I am too. Um, I'm pretty pretty easy to please. I kind of um, I kind of came into this episode like I don't know. I had enough fun watching Ray Earth, but I wasn't that warm on it. And then I just ended up talking about it so lo- so long that I like it now. This is just the how things go with me. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Nia and I are gonna uh, we're gonna privately celebrate. That we have a convert. Um, <laughs> also, but, uh, like this is like I, I'm I'm hopeful that like also f- if you're a listener, you watch the first two episodes, you're coming to this like listening to the discussion, and you're like, we just came off of like Evangelion, which I know is like controversial, but is like doing a lot of shit, and now we're like watching this like. <laughs> Why? Why are you putting these in dialogue? Hopefully, yeah. this is, is also making you like more bought in and ready to continue on and see where this is going to go. Because um, again, it's not just this for fifty episodes. Yeah. Um, even though I think like there's still a lot of stuff that's really great here. Um, shall I do my my finishing thing here? Um, the one thing I'm just gonna I'm gonna throw out one more thing, which is um, we have the this. In episode ten, this possession sequence, um, which it spoiler alert, it's it's going to happen again. Um, this when the girls like it be, come into the proximity of the rune god, um, they're like weirdly possessed. Um, this isn't really, to my recollection, ever like explained outright what's happening here. Um, but again, this is just an instance where like this choice versus obligation um conflict um is is literalized like umi is literally possessed um to like fulfill her role uh in this world and become this magic that she needs to be um her will is like subordinated to something else um it's it's a very weird it's a very weird dynamic that like it even watching it again, I'm like, I don't really know what um, function this whole, like, possession deal serves, other than just, like, the series, again, engaging in this engaging in this thematic tension and, and literalizing it. Yeah. That kind of takes me into my, my final thing here, which is just, what, what are people, like, what's initial reactions to Mecha Sales here? Our first appearance of a Mecca. I specifically wanted us to do 10 episodes so that people watching this and listening to the first discussion episode would be like, okay, yeah, there are robots here. There's hope. I was so flabbergasted. I was like, oh, sick, there are dragons in this show. And I was (laughs) kind of pissed off. I was like, I want this to be a dragon show. I don't give a damn about a robot. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, um... I I was <laughs> I think it's it's really funny how um Rare Earth is just like Yeah, like going back to um I can't remember if it was you Autumn or Unia who um who said this, but um it can sometimes feel like a grab bag of like RPG tropes um or like anime tropes and it's just like Hmm, like dragons or robots? Which one? <laughs> ah, fuck it. Like, let's just have them both. Um, 
but I don't know. I like it. Um, I think it's pretty fucking cool um, that it, you know, that it's a dragon and also a mech. Um, yeah, yeah. This is pr- maybe unsurprising to you, Connor, a person who is playing a both fantasy and mecha themed tabletop role playing campaign with me right now. Um, I like when the dragons are also mechs. <laughs> <laughs> yeah i didn't make that connection um but yeah uh i could have predicted that if i had thought about it yeah i so one of the things here is just like i don't know how much people on this call care about mecha design uh but the mechs and ray earth is just like what my mecha shit is i mean i talked about this a little bit when we did oh ms team as well because i i kind of like the extremes i like it when it's either like this is full real robot like sand gets in the gears this is um like this is just a machine that just looks like a human and like we're going to get into the the nitty-gritty of like how does this operate and how do you like weather conditions affect it or i want it to be a fucking dragon god that turns into a like robot suit of armor that you uh like your spirit goes into we haven't like gotten fully into how does piloting these things work but um yeah it's it's just like it'll it'll become clear as it goes on that the mechs in the show are both like mythic beasts mecha robots and also just giant suits of armor that you wear as like the final evolution of your escudo suit of armor <laughs> mm-hmm um and like all of those are just like kind of the same thing at the same time and i love it <laughs> this is my shit give me weird fantasy thing called Salace the the water dragon god um i love it <laughs> yeah yeah the mechs and rear earth are great the whole mecha component <clears throat> um if if we got too far into this it would be spoilers the whole mecha component of rear earth is is just so satisfying for me Especially when we get into season two, um, the the stuff in season one, even when we get like super into the next stuff, um, I can't help but feel. I can't help but look on it now as like, okay, yeah, we're still just like warming up for season two. Um, yeah, when when it really becomes like a full fledged mecha, but yeah, no, the the reveal is great. I'm glad we ended on episode ten because we got to. It was bananas. <laughs> It's it, such it, a turn. Yeah, there is just a moment where, um, like, I kind of forgot exactly how it went. And so I forgot that, like, Capella is also basically just a mecha. And I was mm. just like, wait, Ascot's just, like, piloting a Zaku right now. <laughs> um, <laughs> and then the dragon just turns into a giant robot and just fucking blasts him. Um, and yeah. it's, yeah, it's just like, oh, yeah, it's. This is a mecha show. Also, I was mo- not lying about that. A move that will never be used again, in spite of like <laughs> it should be, and it would be really convenient. Um, this is like a once in a this is like a once in a lifetime move, apparently. Yeah, um, it's the it's the move that the very first time that you summon it, it gets to use, and then never again. Yeah, right, right. Because these are also basically just like summons in a JRPG. It j- it just does all of it. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah so, I, shall we wrap it up I, I think so um, yeah Autumn do you have any other 
pressing, burning thoughts on episodes one through ten? Mm, no, not really. Okay. Right. Well, you know, if if you come up with any, they're just gonna have to wait till next time um, because <laughs> yeah. we are wrapping up. Yeah. Or you can write in to ghostdiverspot at gmail.com. I'll do that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> You'll um, uh, answer your own question for us. Yeah. <laughs> um, so next episode, we will be talking about episodes 11 through 20 of Magic Knight Ray Earth, which is the second half of season two. Uh, so we'll just really wrap up season two. Season one. Uh, so season one. one. <laughs> yeah. I, it is getting late. I am tired. I know you're tired, Autumn. I don't know where you're at, Connor. Um, I'm ready for bed. I'm ready for fucking bed. <laughs> um, yeah, yep. I'm, I'm there too. Thank you to the Export Audio Network, uh, exportaud.io or patreon.com slash exportaudio. Uh, you can go there, check out the shows. There's lots of great shows. I don't know if there's any. I, I know one that I'm going to plug. People probably know about this by now because this is not going out for like two months. Uh, Autumn, you and I started a podcast. What? Called Ornate Stairwells. We did? I don't know what this bit is. I don't know. I was going to plug Ornate Stairwells and then you started going and I, I had to come up with a new joke on the fly and I wasn't ready for it. Plug Ornate Stairwells. What are we well, doing? See, here, the, the joke that I was going to do was that uh, I was going to be like, I started a new podcast uh, called Ornate Stairwells. It's a movie podcast. Um, where oh, what, me... what's that? <laughs> well, me and uh, my friend, uh, um, <laughs> Neve Shvunha. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, uh, I don't know if people, do, do you all know Neve? Um we're just watching movies together and talking about them afterward. It's pretty good. We did The Hunger first. Uh, that's the only episode that's out right now as of recording. Uh, yeah. It's a very good episode, I think. I'm, so. I think as of when we're recording this, we're doing No Regrets for Our Youth tomorrow. Yes, is the that plan. is the plan. So, I downloaded um, it today. So Nice. Um, it's been a while since I've watched this. I feel like it's a slightly less aesthetic movie, but it's still fun. Um so uh, people can find the podcast at Ghost Divers Pod. You can follow me at Fox Mom Nia on Twitter. Uh, people, where can people follow you? Both, uh, I'll do Connor first. Um, yeah, you, you all can follow me at Rabelais R A B B L E A I S. Some great tweets over there. Uh, where can people follow you, Autumn? Um, uh, you can follow me at uh, autumnal underscore coffee, where you can find me posting. Damian Lillard, uh, Caramel Dancing AMVs, um, and um, you can go to <laughs> export. Have to Odd. dig to find that. <laughs> <laughs> you just if you type in if you go to twitter.com and you go to the little search Twitter in the top right, you type at autumnal underscore coffee and you type in like Happy Pride, everyone. You'll find my Damian Lillard uh, Caramel Dancing AMV. Um, <laughs> What was the other thing I was going to say? Oh, yeah. The Ornate Stairwells does not have a feed yet, but if you go to exportodd.io, you can subscribe to the Patreon. That'll get you um, where Ornate Stairwells lives currently, and by the time this podcast will go out, it'll have its own free feed. Also at exportodd.io, you can just see links to, you know, the podcast we're currently recording, other podcasts that I'm on, um, Duniversity, which is another podcast on the network that's fucking great. Um, 
like export odd.io is like a functionally like a home page where you can just find all of those things that we do. So, yeah. And then give us money. And give us money. That's the most important part. I would rather you give us money than listen to the shows. You could just give us $20 a month and fuck off. <laughs> that's that's ideal, honestly. That's a great, that is a great pitch. Um, <laughs> for people who are not inclined to give you money before you're in it. Um, that is if, fantastic. And if you do still just need some free content, you you freeloaders, you can go to at Garfred Aloud and watch me read Garfield Aloud into a camera almost every day. Um, I'm bad about it on weekends because it's just harder to build into my life on weekends, but I'm trying to get better at it again. <laughs> so I, I have one final thing for us, which is, who is it today? I, we're all going to guess. I'm using a randomizer here. Um... No! Who's the character? <laughs> what character is it today? I'm saying you I'm, I'm saying Prisea. Can I... Can I... Okay. Let, let me establish the rules, which is that... So the, the what I'm pulling from is for the ten episodes. One through ten. At the end of each episode, I wrote down who it was. And so I'm putting all ten of who it was into the random generator and it's going to pull one of those 10 instances so it is someone who shows up in the segment who is it today at the end which you may okay. or may not watch so <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna fucking break the fourth wall here um, we were supposed to do this at the end of the last episode but we, we didn't uh, and so we're recording this before we record the next episode uh, and I didn't know until today, June nineteenth, that um, there was a "Who is it today?" I had not seen it until today <laughs> when I watched episode twenty. So, <laughs> anyway, I'm picking Ferio. Can I change okay. my answer to Bulba? Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I I just want to point out that um for these 10 episodes it's literally all umi fu hikaru and makona so i'm gonna hit random um neither of you are going to be right i can say that before <laughs> it uh picks the name let me see so i said hikaru uh the winner is umi it is umi today everyone damn it <laughs> it was it was almost bulbasaur <laughs> yes <laughs> if you just hit it one more time do it try it It'll, it'll be yeah, can you hit it? Can you keep hitting it until we um, get Bulbasaur, please? <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's that's pretty lame. <laughs> I really am taken with the idea that if you had done this for the last episode, I would have been like, "What are you talking about?" Because <laughs> I didn't and, see and it until today. I knew of the existence of it, but I just like don't. I think I've told this story before. Stop breaking the fourth um, wall. Bye.
Is that a podcast? I think that's a podcast. I think I we think do a so. podcast. All right. Bye. Bye, Bye everyone. Thanks for stopping. Bye. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I'm incapable of saying bye without like just wanting to finish it. Mm. <laughs> yeah, you should just switch back to God be with you. It's more, there's more finality to that. Um... Oh, let's do a final time that is clap. At least you and me, Connor. Okay. Because I know you're the one whose audio is always bad. Mm. That's no worries. No problem. We're going to do 33. Okay. (laughs) Okay, continue your story. Oh, yeah, your story with quotation marks around it. Um, yeah, I'm just, I, I think I've mentioned it on Ghost Divers before, but I, I have a really bad habit of, like, not watching the little end things on it in, you know, whatever the um, mm-hmm. the technical term is for it, um, the bumpers at the end of episodes. Um, and there have been at least, like, a few times where I've been watching a series where there's actually like additional narrative content at the end of those bumpers. And then I just like miss it entirely. Um, and I'll be like 30 episodes in and then I'll finally just like, I'll be distracted or whatever and let the credits like run out. And then I'll finally realize 30 episodes in that there's like worthwhile bumpers to watch. And then I'll be very distraught. Um, yeah. So yeah I... Yet again, uh, I have not watched them for rare earth. I usually will, um, if I get to the ED of any anime, I just go go to the next episode. <clears throat> Unless it's, like, a ED I really like. Like, I really like Zeta Gundam, and so I watch those. But, like, I don't watch EDs for other anime, which means I don't watch the next time on for other anime. We, we haven't talked about this. Um, the Not the ED for the first new season of Ray Earth, but the OP is just my favorite OP ever. Um, it, oh, yeah. It's so fucking good. Um, I don't it's know other people's opinions on English. it. But... It's fucking trash. Yeah. Oh, yeah, it, God. It, yeah, it is. God, um, I... <sighs> it's, it's really unfortunate, too, because you can tell that the English singer is trying really hard. Um, is trying v- but... really hard and not hitting it at all. Yeah. No. Um, also, I think it, it's one of those ones, too, where, like, I feel like even if someone was performing it fairly well, it's a song that, like, highlights how, like, music that 
lyrics are supposed to be set to like those melodies are built around the rhythms of languages and Japanese mm-hmm. is just such a different rhythm. Um, like this also happens with like whenever there's an English track for like, you know, the latest fire emblem that came out, the English tracks also just sound bad, even though the singer is like fine because it's just the rhythm of that melody is designed for Japanese. And so like you have to do weird things with English and it often just like ends up also Japanese, like, you can elide so much in terms of like subject or whatever, because you'll kind of just like establish a subject and then that's just the subject until you reestablish another one. Um, in this way, that's like harder to do in English. And so often English lyrics when they're doing this also have to be like highly simplified compared to the Japanese. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just never good. <laughs> I've like never what? seen it done exceptionally well. I'm pretty sure the Utena dub has a really bad version of um, the Utena song. I think the Utena OP is my favorite OP of all time. I get I get emotional thinking about Take My Revolution, um, but I I think there's a really awful English version out there somewhere. I'm pretty sure. Yeah, um, anyway, I think so- I would be upset if I heard. <laughs> <laughs> Recording initiated. Oh, let me get Craig in here. Craig! Craig! Now recording. Hey, Craig, I was just saying how great you are. I'm never saying how great Craig is. (laughs) Fuck that guy. Craig sucks. Yeah, fuck you, Craig. (laughs) Craig Gyark, you're all right. Gyark is my homie. (laughs) Friendship ended with Craig. Giark is my best friend now. Craig does like uh, Rare Earth, though. He told me he sent me a private message after we recorded last time. Well, that's fine. We don't have to be friends. Yeah, I don't have yeah. to be friends with every single person who likes Rare Earth, Connor. No, no, I know. But I'm just, you know, like, this is a, you know, mitigating evidence here. Yeah, maybe he's he's got some good qualities. I guess. Um, <laughs> oh, I have not seen because you always do it last moment. I'm looking in at uh, your notes now, Connor. Oh yeah, yeah. I just. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I need the notes. I, I need the notes. I need the notes. I uh, um, as 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 I want to do. I uh, just completely went overboard with notes here. Um, I think that should work. Yeah, I mean, found it. Cool, we're good. Yeah, um, I I'm not like married to these, so um, I I noticed that we didn't have uh, a whole bunch. Um, so yeah, my note. I mean, my note taking at this point has gotten very like. I will let Connor do the notes, and I will just respond to Connor because I feel like the one thing with uh, the Ghost in the Shell episodes. I mean, also it's a byproduct of like we had both talked about Ghost in the Shell so much before we recorded that we kind of just knew each other's takes for the most part. Um, but like the the one thing, if I went back and recorded, is that it was just a lot of us like having a lot to say, and then we just take turns saying our thing, and there's not like a lot of um, bouncing back and forth, which I feel like especially with like 08 MS team where I had the fewest notes. Um, it was just a lot easier for me to be like, what's Connor talking about? Let me like on the fly. I know how to do this. 
um i can i can like respond and and build off of this and i feel like the the dialogue got a lot better the like the flow and the rhythm got better so my strategy now is very few actual notes in the doc um i take a fair amount when i'm like actually watching but um yeah i actually like don't put a lot into the document other than like here's some quick things to gesture at stuff that i remember writing about yeah and then on the flip side i am like you've gone in that direction and i've gone in the complete opposite direction where i'm just like let me just take increasingly like detailed and overwrought notes um <laughs> and then just try to like hold them at arm's length while we're, while we're recording and um you know yeah i mean it helps too because then there are just moments where we take up a body break and then i'm looking at it and i'm like connor we have to like wrap this up in an hour what of the like eight different things that you have you written have out here choose. do you really want to talk about yeah <laughs> kill your children yeah yeah um good advice sometimes um yeah but uh yeah so i mean all these children are totally killable obviously um i just leave them here in case anyone um wants to I mean, I'll, I'll, they'll come up in like the flow of conversation, I'm sure. But, you know, yeah. they're just here. Um, do we want to get any other jokes out or should we just do time that is? <laughs> um, no, I don't have any jokes. I was thinking about it. I was running through the head. I finished my rum and coke, by the way. Nice. nice. I am just starting my good doctor because I was so focused on being really upset at my internet. Oh, I, I told Connor this while you were getting your internet fixed, and I'll just say it now to the recording, and we don't have to spend a long time on this. I just thought I'd give the listeners an update. In the time between these two recordings, I, I bought ice trays, so I have real ice in my cocktails now. It's great. Oh my gosh. <laughs> um, I should, that was I should... not... That I was not clarify. the case when we did ornate stairwells, I don't think. No, it was not. I was also drinking the fake plastic ice in ornate stairwells. Also, I should give credit where it's due. I did not buy ice trays. I would have continued to suffer with the bad fake ice forever. Nora buy ice trays. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you, Nora. <laughs> I'm going to marry um, that bitch. <laughs> you are. Um... I think I'm going to actually take a quick bathroom break before we start. Um, just okay. so we don't have to um, do an okay. early break. Um, so just give me a couple. Uh, give me a quick minute. Okay. I'm going to then watch this video that I put on Twitter to make sure it's actually funny. Because I don't actually know if I got the timing right because I was doing it just by like looking at the waveforms. <laughs> Seemed gay to me. It's okay. It's okay. Could have done better. Could have done better. Have you watched my uh, AMV ultimate combination? No. Um, I very lazily made this AMV, and I was surprised at how much I actually timed stuff up correctly, uh, despite the fact that I like literally wasn't trying to time anything up. Uh, let me just send this to you. That's kind of what happened with my Carmel Dancing one earlier, where Reg texted me like, oh my god, you got the tapping the wrist right into the second chorus. I was like, I was literally just putting clips in, in sequence. I was not paying attention. Oh my god, that's so loud. 
Okay. What was that? <laughs> um, My stomping? No. Oh. Um, there, I just sent it. Um, some reason it's not loading very well for me, but I I will stop taxing my internet. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, this is an AMV I made uh, because my friend Carlos uh, really in. So I have like a weird fondness for Olaf Burger that extends to like some a friend group of mine having a weird fondness for this German Schlager music. Okay, um, I was gonna be like, what is Olaf Burger? <laughs> <laughs> um and the favorite so Carlos's favorite Olaf Burger song is this song, Nonstop in Paradies. Um, and I was just like staying at my parents' house once and just like bored out of my mind and had this idea of Carlos also likes when, uh, super robots combine in anime to make like giant robots. And so it was just a bunch of his favorite like robot combinations and I combined them all into an AMV and I just put nonstop Inspirities to it. Um, and it ended up syncing up like incredibly well. Uh, so I'm very proud of it still. It's a it's a masterpiece. It's it's my favorite AMV I've ever done. Uh, and there have been many. So, if I was going to make fun of you, <laughs> be like, I would probably if I was gonna like do a parody of how I think you are, I'd be like, oh, I'm Nia. I like Olaf Burger, the famous German punk band, or whatever. <laughs> Like, it sounds made up when you say it. Listen, Olaf Berger is a noted German Schlager musician. If you say so. I don't know what Schlager is. I thought it was Um, beer. No, so Schlager is like a a style of... um, 30 minute explanation forthcoming. It's kind of just like the German, like, this is what the the popular, like, this is like top 40s pop in Germany. It's just Schlager music, which like, it literally just means like hits. Um, And so they're like Schlager musicians, which are musicians like Olaf Berger, whose like whole thing is to try and do hits. So oh, through internet, it gave up. That's fine. I was talking about Olaf Berger. Who the fuck cares? <laughs> <clears throat> it was just it was just a brief <laughs> moment, but your internet it was almost as if it just couldn't take it anymore. It decided to spare you. <laughs> it was like there's you've reached the word limit for this subject and yeah. I'm cutting you off. So Schlager literally just means like hit in terms of like uh like musical hit. And yeah. And Olaf Berger is someone who's like tries to make hits. Okay. He's just like a popular musician who yeah. German Schlager music. I explained it better the first time, but you all don't get the better explanation now. Let's do no. dime dot is <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Also it doesn't help that while you were talking the rum hit. Like, mm. while you were talking, I was like, oh, okay. I'm not drunk, but I'm a little buzzed. 
All right, time dot is. I can't remember. Do you, do you all like even numbers or prime numbers? What's the one I that like, you don't like? I like fives and zeros, but I, you know what? You just but but I don't like zeros, so I guess fives. Okay, we're gonna go with you... thirty three. See, this I respect. I respect just being like, I don't care. I'm going to ask, and then I don't care. (laughs) Did we all clap at 33? Yes. I heard that. But I was laughing right before my clap. I was laughing during my clap. (laughs) Do we we need another clap? Yeah. Okay. We're going to go with um, 05. Okay. That was nice. Yeah, good clap. Quality clap. Um, all right. Do we have any other chuckles to get out? Or are we starting a podcast? I'm a, yeah. I'm a fucking professional podcaster. Let's go. Let's get this done. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Yeah. Um, I I have to go take a spiroblader break, but um, <laughs> let's let's come back afterwards and we'll like quick look through. Like, I want to talk a little bit about Ferio now, although we can maybe postpone it for the next few episodes. Yeah, I've got um, I've got one last thing on my mind about the first five, and then yeah, I'm good to move on to the next couple. But yeah, let's take a break. All right, I am back. Okay, I'm back as well. I had a, a double good doctor, so I'm oh. I'm fairly drunk at this point. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I'm still I'm still working my way through my first beer, but as someone who never drinks, um one beer is enough to get me buzzed and then the second is enough to be like thoroughly drunk. So by the time we hit the uh, the Tarkovsky limit, I will probably be uh, fully drunk. Yeah. Um, I have a few like things that I wanted to touch on um, for the first five, and I can go through them quickly um, if we want to move on. But um, yeah, I'll let Autumn like kick off with their thing, um, and then yeah. We'll see where it goes. I think the biggest thing for me is just Faria, but that's also something that I think might actually make more sense with 6 through 10, um, just to like talk a little bit more about Faria and Fu. I mean, I know he <laughs> comes up here, but I feel like it'll make more sense to to really flesh it out after we talk about the like Dune episode. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah, I can just like do the modes of masculinity note like at that point. Yeah. Um that that makes sense. I'm just checking Twitter now. Oh yeah, important. <laughs> Got to make sure that um. Well, one one day you should live tweet our <clears throat> podcast recording. That sounds horrible. <laughs> Now we're talking about this. 
That's Autumn's late motif. <laughs> so during recording, Autumn tweeted uh, a shot of unemployment. As Giles learns to cope with being unemployed and the growing belief that Buffy no longer needed him, he resumed a sexual relationship with his old friend, Olivia Williams, who Anya Jenkins tactlessly labeled his orgasm friend. <laughs> that's, some deep, that's some deep Buffy stuff. Yeah. Um, yeah, having never watched Buffy, I... I wish I could participate in that, but <clears throat> it's been a while since I've watched Buffy. It's the kind of thing where like Harvey wants to rewatch it because it's just been so long, <clears throat> but also I feel like it's aged really badly, mm. as a lot of Joss Whedon stuff has. I oh, think. it's Joss Whedon, yeah, yeah. Okay, looks like I don't know if you saw the the message in the Discord. Oh yeah, um, yeah, I did. I have, like, had a lingering cough from when I was really sick. Um, and it was, like, mostly gone, and then it returned, like, literally a half hour before recording. <laughs> oh, that's, um, that's unfortunate. Sorry to hear that. I haven't noticed it, though, for whatever it's worth. Are you, yeah, it's not too bad, and I, I usually try and cough away from the mic, and then it's easy to, like, if I do it um, not while I'm talking, it's very easy for me to also cut out when I'm editing. Mm. I'm just now, I'm on the Buffy, like, wiki. <laughs> I sometimes do this, where I just, I'm like, I'm never going to watch this show, but I'll read the wiki for a little while. Have you listened to to Ornate Stairwells yet? I have not. Okay. There's there's a part where I talk about a thing that I sometimes do, which is when I'm about to watch a movie, I will search it on uh Google Scholar um and then like figure out looks like autumn disappeared. Mm-hmm. Um I I will just like read abstracts to figure out what is the like the um like general what are the most cited articles and like academic writing about this work so um but i i read some for the movie that we watched <laughs> some some abstracts yeah <laughs> that's cool um because it was the third man right no so for the our first one we did um the hunger oh yeah i don't know why i thought it was we watched the third man the week before and we're like very close to recording a podcast about it. Um, Autumn was just very, very tired. Yeah. For some reason I was to like, go to bed. I was like, Oh, you're doing the hunger next. Um, and I didn't, I don't know why my brain did that. I think we're doing no regrets for our youth tomorrow. Oh, okay. Never seen that one. And literally, we we watch the movie and then like immediately just record a podcast. So. <laughs> yeah, that's a that's a very different uh, that's a different a very different methodology. <laughs> oh my god, this article is so long. Which article? 
one of the characters in Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Oh. It is so long. Which character are you doing? Giles. Oh. There's a lot of lore around Giles. Following Sunnydale's destruction, the Scooby Gang had expanded into a global organization, training approximately 500 Slayers spread over 10 squads. Giles was one of the heads of the Slayer organization and traveled the squads to instruct their Slayers, such as St. Petersburg and Chicago. In addition, with the Watcher's Council destroyed, the only known traditionally trained Watcher of the organization was Giles, who recognized himself as the Council itself for all intents and purposes. There's four endnotes in that paragraph. Um, Autumn is, yeah. is in a all-out brawl over this microphone. Um, isn't isn't Giles the one too who is like Jack the Ripper or something? Uh. Let's look under aliases. Ripper. So that sounds right. He was a former librarian. Um, yeah. So let's see. Ripper. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, I, I don't know. I'm I'm not gonna read it anymore. <laughs> Hello? I've, I've gotten my fix. Hello? Hello. Oh good. I was muted yes. for a second, but I'm back. <laughs> so I didn't just do a good doctor, I, I did a double good doctor, um, and I drank it all. Mm. That's <laughs> So a single good doctor is thirty minutes long. It's on CBS. What's a good doctor? <laughs> Syndicated television is uh, one and a half ounces of whiskey, one and a half ounces Thanks. of Fernet Branca, and six ounces of Dr Pepper. So I just drank two of those. Is um, does, is, does Nora also like Dr Pepper? Oh, I Nora did, like that. Did Z also? Uh, get high once and then drink it and not thinks it's the best soda? <laughs> uh, I'm pretty sure uh, Z has been a Dr. Pepper fan like since the womb. I think it just when you are born okay. in Texas, you just like So Dr. you Pepper. don't have to do any drugs. And particularly Walmart for years. It wasn't until I lived in Germany and didn't have Dr. Pepper that I appreciate it. It's true. Us Germans really appreciate Dr. Pepper. <laughs> anyway, welcome back. Do we need another clap? Podcast? We do need another clap because I need to start a new audacity. Okay. Right. So I will clearly label the two parts of the audacity that I'm sending you, Nia, but yeah, yeah. I need to do another clap. Okay. All right, um, let me know when you're ready. Just going to refresh time that is, make sure it's all synced. Okay, I'm good. Okay, um, 59. Oh, wait, I fucked that up. Yeah, you fucked that up. <laughs> I really fucked that up. You fucked that up real good.
Do Do you need me to do a five? I can do a five for you if you. If it's you really it's it. fine. I'm just drunk. <laughs> Jesus fucking Christ. Okay, we're gonna do twenty five. <laughs> okay. Better. <laughs> yeah, I I did it on time. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you totally. Do you need me to run the podcast? <laughs> no, it's fine. Although uh Connor and I were talking about we're we're gonna have you start with your thing. Um, okay. Um, I don't know how you do normally do this. Do you want me to just like pretend there was no break or do you want me to just be like, and we're back? Uh, we usually just pretend that there was no break. Yeah, just start talking. Okay. Um. Did, did I lose you? It's, no, it's I'm, I'm still good. here. I think I'm <laughs> cut out. Okay. First I thought um, it was me. And I no, think, you're good. Um, I'm just admiring uh, this. The way this that it leads into episodes, the, uh, uh, in the episode Discord. 10 is really good. Oh. I don't have um, internet. That's why nobody's talking. Do you want to tell Autumn that we lost them? Yeah. Do we want to clap as well to mark this? Hello? Um, sure. I'll just do a little. I'm going to I'm gonna quick go pee again, just because I kind of have to. Um, yeah, I'm going to go get some water. Okay. Hello. Okay, Nia's peeing. But I'm back. I'm gonna get water. Alright, I am back. Okay, I'm back. Autumn said, I'm going to get water, but I'm back. Okay, cool. I'm just going to, while this is happening, I'm just going to go to to Twitter.com. Mm. And let me just switch this over to Ghost Divers Pod. <laughs> and you're going to tweet that still? Yeah. <laughs> All right. I know you too well at this point. Hello. hello 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 i'm tweeting the i'm tweeting the still that you said on the ghost divers account um it, i put we we are currently recording our first discussion episode for ray earth and i just think you all should see the screenshot that autumn took is all it's just gay it's just gay it's just gay <laughs> do we uh do we want to clap to <clears throat> get back into this yeah i didn't I, stop I only really I only I do like a clap on my end, Autumn. I don't really care if the rest of you do. It just lets me know when I'm editing, like where I need to cut stuff out. So this is why this is what I use Control M for. I mean, I could do that. I'm just lazy. <laughs> I, I just I know myself, <laughs> and hitting Control M is way easy for me to look at. Ways easier for me to look for than trying to find a clap. That's all. Um, so you were like 
Autumn, you were midstream talking about like the fact that you missed this when you were watching. And then I only like, missed this because like, I wasn't paying attention. That's all I was saying is that like 